There is no doubt that after sheer curiosity, the most common reason people become interested in cannabis is pain. Pain is terrible. It interrupts our lives, occupies our minds and emotions, and becomes the boss of everything. Pain takes the last of our will to do things, limits our activities, and is emotionally crushing as it repeats incessantly that things are out of our control and that we are living in a broken body. All the drugs commonly prescribed by Western doctors offer little help, cost a great deal, and in the end, often leave us craving and addicted physically, which just adds to our feeling of powerlessness. It doesn't matter if you have carpal tunnel, a broken back, an incurable disease, or just too sore from working in the garden. Pain limits us and weighs on us emotionally. But prior to Prohibition, the American pharmacopoeia was filled with uses for cannabis to fight a variety of pain. Humans have been using cannabis for pain and discomfort for generations, and it worked. But now that prohibition is unraveling, we have access to cannabis medicine like never before. It is incredibly safe, far safer than prescriptions, and can be grown and prepared at home. If you want to learn about cannabis health, business, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out, delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos, too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we give away very cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive that newsletter. So go to shapingfire.com to sign up for the newsletter and be entered into this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. If your company budgeted thousands of dollars for cannabis conventions in 2020, which are all canceled now, I invite you to consider moving your marketing investment to Shaping Fire. For only a fraction of what it would cost you to attend just one convention, you can advertise for nearly a year on Shaping Fire. It has been a busy few weeks as other companies have reached out to Shaping Fire because their whole year of customer outreach events were just canceled, and they are scrambling for new ways to reach their customers. The audience for Shaping Fire is made up of curious cannabis enthusiasts, entrepreneurs, and home growers, and you can reach them for less than the price of a postcard each. Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out more. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I'm your host, Shango Los. Today, my guest is cannabis pharmacologist, A.D. Ray. Dr. Ray, Ph.D., is a National Institutes of Health-funded neuroscientist who has been studying cannabis, opioids, and their interaction for her entire career. She has a strong publication record in chronic pain, addiction, and harm reduction. Dr. Ray is currently an assistant scientist at Legacy Research Institute in Portland, Oregon, and holds a joint faculty appointment at Washington State University. She is also co-founder of Smart Cannabis, a data-driven cannabis consultancy focused on connecting all humans with the best cannabis for their needs. They also produce one of America's most respected cannabis competitions and education events, the Cultivation Classic in Portland, Oregon. Today, we're going to talk about transitioning from using opioids to cannabis for treating pain. Welcome to the show, Aidy. 
Thank you, Shango. It's so great to be here. I really appreciate you sharing some of your valuable time with us. I know that even during a pandemic, you are busy, busy, busy. So thank you so much for joining us. You bet. So let's get right into it. You know, since we're going to be talking a lot about how um, opiates and cannabis moderate the experience of pain, I think we should probably get all on the same page about what pain is and how we experience it biologically. So, so let's start with that. What's going on physically in the brain that senses pain? Sure. Pain is a very useful phenomenon. It is a feedback system that our body uses to keep us alive. If we didn't have pain, we wouldn't know that we were encountering things in our environment that are potentially hazardous to our tissue and to our lives. So a great example of this is people who have a con congenital insensitivity to pain. So that is, you know, they can walk over coals and they can break their arm and they can, you know, burn their hands hands and have absolutely no idea. And these individuals end up living very short lives because we actually need that feedback from our environment to protect our tissue and our lives. So pain is the phenomenon where our central nervous system, our brain, registers noxious information from our environment. Now, that's all well and good, but there are a lot of conditions under which that system goes haywire. So for instance, you know, if you have an individual with um, an amputee, uh, that individual can often end up developing phantom limb pain. That is, they have pain in the absence of that biological thing that the pain is trying to protect. So that example tells us that there's something more than just you have nerves out in your fingertips and in your arms and in your skin, which are transferring information about the environment into the spinal cord. And that signal is being sent up to the brain and the brain brain is putting together a picture of what the environment is like. So it, it's more complex than, you know, merely a, um, a sensory system that is integrating information inside of our brain. The brain really has a, a, a powerful role in constructing what the environment and what the body is going through. So Pain, although it is a useful thing, um, it also can really go haywire. And there, a lot of those things that go wrong happen at the level of the brain, not necessarily at the level of the tissue. That phantom limb example that you gave, I find extraordinarily interesting. Um, it has been explained to me before that um, that uh, pain is it takes place in the brain. And, you know, I normally find that to be kind of a semantic difference that's not incredibly helpful to patients, but, but it is very interesting when talking about uh, secession of pain with opiates and cannabis. And yet, um, occasionally I'll come across uh, a healthcare worker who says, no, describing that pain is in the brain is very helpful to, for patients because it allows them to have an understanding that they can manage their pain with thought and perspective and with drugs instead of they are a victim to their hip or whatever. Right. It's yeah, a really so complex thing. It really is. And you're absolutely true that 
pain does take place in the brain and we have, you know, a whole network of, you know, brain structures that are involved in constructing that picture for us. And, you know, when I was uh, an early postdoc, my first year as a postdoc in Sydney, I went to a talk that was given by a number of folks who were involved in clinical pain work. Um, And at the time, Australia was really cutting edge in their view of pain because they actually gave chronic pain its own disease category. Mm. Like pain is a disease. Chronic pain is a disease. Um, And that still doesn't really have, um, you know, chronic pain doesn't have that that kind of recognition here in North America. Um, And so I'm at this talk as, you know, a budding pharmacologist and physiologist. You know, my job was to measure neurotransmitter release that was being released from neurons in brain slices. Hard, hardcore physiology and pharmacology, you know, drugs interacting with the brain receptors and then, you know, changes happening in neuron activity. And I'm, I'm watching this talk and I'm seeing these patients and I'm hearing them describe their lives and how they're able to have these absolutely debilitating injuries. And yet they wake up every day and they say, yeah, you know, my pain's at about an eight today, you know, sitting here in front of you in this chair. And you're like, what? How How can you be physically registering so much bodily sensation and yet totally nonplussed, just completely fine with it. And, you know, from from this talk, I really began to understand that the cognitive component of coping with pain, walking with pain, living beside pain, that ability resides wholly in our brain. That is totally within our control. And it really is, you know, a testament to the the power of our thought, the power of our cognition and our attention, what we pay attention to grows and magnifies. Um, And it's not that you necessarily turn your attention away from the pain, um, although, you know, that is one coping strategy. Um, It's more shifting your your attention to something else. Um, So, you know, and as a pharmacologist, I'm like, well, what the heck am I doing? You know, what is my, (laughs) here I am trying to like make better pain therapies and make better drugs. And, and, you know, all we need is, is meditation and coping strategies and cognitive behavioral therapy and biofeedback what okay I quit (laughs) (laughs) so you're absolutely right you know pain lives in the brain and we have an enormous amount of power and control over it if we can learn the tools to harness it you know, we'll, we'll talk a lot more about cannabis as a distractant later on, but I want to double down on your experience, um, with the, the mental, the, the powerful mental capabilities of, of pain patients. You know, I'm very grateful that I haven't had a lot of pain in my life, except when I, um, had an injury and rotated my L5 and was in like a hysterical amount of pain more than I'd ever been in my life where I was just like squirming on the doctor's table because my mind was, was just all, was all bright. And, Mm -hmm. um, when I meet patients through, you know, teaching about cannabis medicine and traveling for it and everything, and, and I meet these folks and, and like you said, they, you know, they are having an eight day, but they are presenting themselves as calm, cool, and collected at the talk or whatever. 
And then, you know, we get together kind of like on the side and we sit next to each other and we talk and, and I'm trying to understand the nature of their pain so I can make some sort of recommendation to them because that's what they're there for. Um, and the more we talk about it, it brings them mentally away from their, I don't know, let's say meditative life where they're just, they're focusing on the doingness of life mm -hmm. and intentionally distracting themselves from the pain. But as they describe it more in detail, you can see the, the defenses coming down. And, you know, very often by the time we're done understanding the nature of their pain, they are shaking and in tears. And the only thing that's changed is that part of us doing, you know, what we were there to do was they needed to let down their guard and be vulnerable for a moment. And when they let down their guard, I got to truly see the pain expressed through them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's very difficult as somebody who's trying to help somebody to not get like, like, sucked into that experience of compassion with them and start crying too, right? I got to tell you, working with pain patients and getting to know them and being one for a while in a, in a small way really has given me huge respect for people who deal with chronic pain every day. Absolutely. Um, there's a couple of things in there that I want to unpack, one of which is that attention, right? So when you're when you're paying attention, and you're really digging in and looking at it and describing it and putting words to it. Um, I'm going to talk about that. And then I, I also let's let's start there. So in that attention, I, I worked with a fibromyalgia patient once who told me, you know, I noticed that on my worst pain days, those were the days I was taking my opioids. And I, I couldn't tell if, you know, I was taking the opioids because it was my worst pain day or if my pain was worse because I was spending so much time thinking about, should I take a half a pill or should I take a whole pill today? So just the body scan, the physical body scan of looking for the pain that's what makes the pain real, right? So she was going through her process of waking up in the morning and doing her body scan. And just by paying attention to it, that's what fed the need for her pain relievers. Gosh, so, that makes total sense. And it, right? that's so sad too. Yeah. And I mean, could you think about like how many individuals are doing that this morning, right? Waking up and going, oh boy, what kind of day is it going to be today? Um, and, and really going in and looking for it and digging into those things, you know? And if you're over 35, you can, you can find that within your body if you really want to. There's some spot that ails all of us because, you know, that's what it's like to have a body. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the other component that you talk about is that emotional component of pain. So my colleagues and I at um, WashU in St. Louis, we put out a paper in the journal Neuron last year, um, and it was in mice and, and some of it was in rats. But what we demonstrated is that the physical, the bodily sensation of pain and the emotional or affective component of pain are inseparable. They are two symptoms of the same phenomenon that are being driven by this, uh, this little network in the brain. So, you know, 
we have been going about treating pain from the bodily, you know, sensation of it for many decades. You know, that's the whole reason that opioids exist is we've been trying to anesthetize the physical sensations of pain with this drug. Um, But our work demonstrates that you can't just ignore the emotional component of pain because it is literally wrapped up in the exact same brain areas and the exact same mechanisms that are happening with the bodily sensations of pain. And we see this, you know, like roughly 80 plus percent of patients with chronic pain also experience some kind of mood disorder like anxiety, depression, or both. So it's no surprise that, you know, people who are in chronic pain also have depression because that is literally the manifestation of chronic pain. It has both a bodily component and an emotional component. So whatever we do to treat pain, chronic pain, we have to think of the organism holistically. We have to think of the emotional well-being as well as the physical well-being of the body. Well, I really like the fact that you are you focus so much on um, the vocabulary of pain as well. And it's, it's interesting, pa- people who are new to their pain they often struggle to describe it because, you know, luckily up to this point in their life, they haven't had to describe it. Whereas people who have had lifelong pain, you know, they can, they can describe it on a number chart and they've got all these different flavors of it. It's like, it's, they've got like a Crayola box, you know, mm-hmm, of, right. of descriptors. So, so let's, let's talk about that for a moment because so often people who are coming to cannabis for pain, um, one of the challenges that they have is delineating between the types of pain, either for themselves, like in their pain journal or f- to the doctor. And, and we know that there are different types of pain, right? There's a, there's a big difference between the, the sharp and stabby pain from a fresh fracture, fracture versus the kind of like um, mind boggling everywhere experience when you're having a flare up of rheumatoid arthritis, right? Mm-hmm. So, so um, I don't, re- I don't actually know anything about this part of the process. What do you use as a, as I guess a range of how to describe pain? Well, you know, you're right in that no one's pain is is like anyone else's, right? So it seems important to think about, like, is this throbbing? Is it stabbing? And in the clinic, those kinds of things are really useful from a diagnosis perspective because you can say, ah, aha, this is – these kinds of descriptors would indicate an inflammatory condition, which means we need to treat it in this way versus, oh, those kinds of distri- descriptors – Uh, indicate uh, some kind of neuropathy, so some kind of damage to the nerves or some kind of problem with the um, transmission of the nerve signals. So so those kinds of pain um, are better treated with these modalities. So that kind of vocabulary is really important in the clinic for diagnosing a a path forward for treatment. Um, However, on the other hand, uh, you know, I tend to make the argument that, you know, once you've gotten past that initial, you know, diagnosis stage and you know what kind of pain you're dealing with, you know, then it doesn't really matter 
because it's all subjective. It's all only happening to you inside of your own brain from your perspective. And no one's pain is similar. You know, you can have two individuals who have the exact same injury, like a, a rib fracture, right? Same rib, same spot. And yet their descriptions of the pain, how much the pain bothers them, how that pain interferes with their life, it's all totally different. And so, yes, on the one hand, being able to have words for your experience is really helpful. And it's also when you're in a community setting and you're you're getting support from other people who have the same kind of ailment that you do, it's really validating to hear, oh, yes, that's exactly what I feel. And it's so comforting to know that another human being feels what I feel. Um, but on the other hand, it's totally subjective and irrelevant because all that matters is how you feel. And so if you're feeling bad in any way, whatever those bad words are, then, then that's a starting point for how can we start feeling better? How can we shift the attention, the conversation, the treatment, the therapy, your day? How can we shift all of that so that whatever descriptors you're using, you start to feel better? Let's follow up on that because it is so common. Your, I like your example of the, the same disclo dislocated rib in the same place and two people will have different um, experiences of pain. It is so incredibly common that um, the person who's experiencing more pain, whereas other people experience less pain, are written off as being a wuss, like they can't handle it, like they're immature, they're being a baby about it. And I always think that invalidating somebody else's pain is is not legitimate and and certainly there are there are situations where we want to encourage someone to not focus on their pain which is a different thing but but invalidating a patient having their pain invalidated by friends family or even a health practitioner is just wrong and i just want to hear what you have to say about that Oh, I mean, to me, like the perfect example is like the hysterical woman, right? <laughs> for, for, for how many hundreds of years, you know, women do experience more chronic pain and women have more, you know, painful things that are associated with childbirth and reproduction, um, hormonal imbalance. And for many hundreds of years, that was completely invalidated and we were seen as the weaker sex and, you know, we were um, shunned by you know, uh, psychotherapists and, you know, the, the, it, it's that, that to me is like the most extreme, extreme example of totally invalidating someone else's experience. Um, and I feel very grateful that now we live in a time where, you know, we are slowly being able to recognize that each individual's reality has as much value as anyone else's reality. You know, I, I'm really inspired by like my undergrad, you know, students who come through the laboratory and these are like privileged white kids who go to a private school and yet at the same time they go, oh, I'm sorry, I can't talk about that. That's a trigger for me, you know, and everyone respects that. They're like, wow, like this is a, a next evolution in, in humanity we're talking about here. <laughs> so so I, I, I'm really encouraged by, you know, this idea that we're all coming to accept that if this is real for you, then it's real for you. Right on. So I imagine that, you know, you know, in a, in a pain, in a chronic pain 
textbook in the school. There's a chapter on the different types of pain. And you know, it, there's, there's, a, there's a section on inflammation and there's a section on nerve damage. And you know, you study chronic pain uh, intensely and for years. And so will you give us a general understanding of the different categories of chronic pain? Yeah, certainly. For me, they fall into three big buckets, which two of which you mentioned already. Um, you know, the inflammatory pain, the neuropathic pain. So that is, you know, some kind of damage or dysfunction in the nervous system that is causing pain. And then we have this other weird one, which is like this mysterious, um, you know, sort of central pain, something like fibromyalgia, where you can't really pin down exactly what's going wrong with any particular part of the physical biology of the organism, and yet the organism is still reporting that they're in severe pain. So that those are the three broad categories, the inflammatory, the neuropathic, and then the centralized pain. Um, and there, there can be a lot of transition from either inflammatory pain to central pain or neuropathic pain to central pain. You know, for instance, where you have an injury that totally resolves, you know, there's some kind of, you know, car accident or work-related injury, the injury is totally resolved, and yet the brain for potentially the rest of its life is still keeps registering some kind of discomfort. So there can be a transition from one of those two types to centralized pain. There is also... To, there tends to be an inflammatory component to even neuropathic pain, especially in the early days of the development of neuropathic pain. Um, so, for instance, uh, chemotherapy-induced neuropathy. So people who often survive cancer will, you know, they'll beat their cancer, but they'll be stuck with this neuropathic pain that was induced by the chemotherapeutic drugs attacking the central nervous system or the peripheral nervous system. So when I say peripheral, that's everything outside of the brain and spinal cord and central nervous system is the brain and spinal cord itself. So, you know, chemo drugs will attack the nerves throughout the body and leave the cancer survivor with this lifelong pain. But in the very early days of the development of chemotherapy-induced neuropathy, there is an inflammatory component, right? Those chemotherapeutic drugs pull in the brain's immune system, or, or I'm sorry, the body's immune system and all of our processes that we have for fighting off pathogens. Um, and the, it recruits our inflammatory processes to start the damage to the nerves. So although, yes, you can sort of put things roughly into these buckets of inflammatory pain where you have all of these, um, you, you know, the, the body recruits certain molecules to draw blood and draw attention to, um, you know, some invading process or pathogen. Um, you get swelling, you know, you know, edema, um, redness, um, soreness. There's um, more fluid in joints, for instance. So there's all of those, like, that's a very molecular process where there's just a whole lot of, like, molecules, you know, flying around, going crazy, doing their jobs, hustling and bustling to try and keep 
keep this organism alive um, to the extent that it is, you know, somewhat maladaptive. You know, we have so much of the body trying to protect itself that it is actually, you know, really painful for the person who has the body. So, you know, that although you can put, you know, in, inflammation in its own bucket, there is largely an, an inflammatory component to neuropathic pain. And then either one of those things can develop into a central pain once the inflammation has gone away, once the nerve has totally regenerated or, you know, whatever other um, neuropathic thing might have happened. All right, good. So I'm going to let's change directions a little bit. Now that we have established, um, you know, what what playing field we are on with pain and that uh, pain is experienced um, in the brain. Um, let's talk about um, opioids themselves. And so we're not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about the, you know, the pharmacology of um, opioids because that's that's not really what we're about. We're, I think everybody who's here and listening has already made the decision that that they already want to move away from from opioids. So, um, however. If we're talking about replacing opioids with cannabis, um, we certainly need to have an understanding of what opioids do, what their method of action is, so that later on in the show, we can compare that to cannabis. So would you give us an understanding of, of um, what opioids are doing and why there is a belief that that decreases pain? Yeah, you bet. You know, I think that you're right that, you know, a lot of your listeners are here and a lot of Americans and Canadians and people all over the world are interested in cannabis because it is so obvious that, you know, opioids are nasty drugs. And that is true. You know, we clearly have a huge overdose epidemic on our hands. However, there, you know, opioids are really good drugs, under very few conditions. You know, like the whole reason they exist is because they are profoundly good at turning off the bodily sensations of pain. They are profoundly good at sort of, you know, somewhat anesthetizing um, the, the body and, and not allowing it to experience the physical you know, sensations of pain. Um, so they are really good at that because they act in the brain itself to shut off the sensations of pain that are coming in through the spinal cord. So if you can imagine all of your nerves are like little tiny highways of information and all those highways are headed in one direction and that is into the spinal cord. And that spinal cord becomes like this central hub, like that's the, the main highway and all of the information coming through those tiny little, you know, arteries are coming through this central highway of information and then, you know, going into the headquarters, which is the brain. And so opioids shut off the sensation of pain at the headquarters. And so my academic work has always been focused on one particular brain area called the periaqueductal gray. And this really is the brain's pain headquarters because it is, if you, if you put an opioid directly into the periaqueductal gray or the PAG, if you put an opioid there, you shut off pain throughout the entire body. And if you put opioids everywhere else, but you block them only in this brain area, then you don't get any pain relief at all. And so we know that this is a critical component in, you know, the 
controlling or modulating the sensation of pain throughout the entire organism, this tiny little brain area. It's fascinating. What's really interesting about this brain area also is that it's where the body or the brain develops tolerance to opioids as well. So again, if you repeatedly give the brain, you know, just this PAG region, if you repeatedly give it opioids, it will develop tolerance. But if you block opioids here, but continue to give the whole rest of the body opioids, the organism never develops tolerance. So this is a really critical brain region. And we'll talk more about it, you know, when we get to the cannabinoid control over pain. But opioids bind to receptors in this brain region. So you can think of it as a lock and a key. So these locks, these receptors are studying the outside of our neurons. They're just little padlocks, you know, waiting for their keys to come floating by. And those keys, the drugs, the opioids themselves come and they float along and they lock into the binding sites on these proteins and they turn on certain intracellular um, signaling cascades. So these are molecules that once they become activated by the binding of the opioids to these proteins, they go off and they do some other job. They control neurotransmitter release, they turn on genes, you know, they control other proteins. It's a whole very sophisticated set of, you know, intracellular and, you know, um, between cellular communications. So the sum total of all of those, like, you know, hundreds of thousands of millions of little, you know, protein-protein interactions, the sum total of that is the organism not experiencing pain because it has been shut off at the level of the brain itself. Wow, 80, that was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that was That was the best explanation I have ever heard. I, I don't know if you, you know, I mean, I, I know you've got a, a PhD and at some point you probably had to teach classes. You were probably an awesome teacher. <laughs> oh, thank you. I really enjoy being in the classroom. But, you know, I, I feel like, you know, conversations like ours where we get to talk to uh, the lay the lay person, um, I, I think that's equally important. Yeah, well, it, it's a very that explanation was a very nice balance of of using um, accurate um scientific, um, let's say like how it actually works while also, uh, using vocabulary that we're all familiar with so that you don't sound like a textbook. So that's great. <laughs> so, so, um, so uh, let's use, let's use me for a straw man for a minute, because at your description, um, opioids actually sound like they'd be really effective, right? Like, mm -hmm. like, you, like listening to your description, I'm like, well, hell, maybe these actually work, you know, am, am I, is this all this trash I've been talking about opioids, um, not justified. And the problem is actually more the abuse than the fact that they don't work. But right. in my own personal experience, and like I said earlier, I haven't had a lot of experience with pain. Um, but, uh, but after I had my, uh, ACL surgery after a, after a skiing accident, um, they gave me, um, opioids to help with the pain. And I'm like, you know, as a psychonaut, I'm like, oh, I'm going to get to try something new, you know? <laughs> and so I used it. And, and my experience was, is it really did not do anything to help with the pain, but it made me feel like the pain was maybe down the hallway 
Um, mm-hmm. And so it kind of distanced me from the pain a little bit. And I certainly found it to be um, a bit of a fun distractant. Like it was, it was a novel mind state that was interesting. But <clears throat> after, after the first day, I'm like, you know, I, I don't really, it's not helping. Right. And, and, mm-hmm. and mostly it made me stupid for everything else I wanted to do. So is my experience um, typical or is my experience, you know, more fringe? I think that it, it might be a little bit of both. So, you know, when you asked the question like, hey, you know, Edie, you made this sound phenomenal and these are really powerful drugs. Um, yes, that's true. However, you have to keep in mind that the PAG is not the only place where these opioid receptors live. They live on lots of other brain structures and they live in lots of other important places in our bodies. Um, For instance, in the brain stem, the area that's like our old evolutionary lizard brain, the thing that keeps us, you know, ticking automatically, keeps our breathing going. that's that's the area where you also have opioid receptors and if they get hit over the head too hard they will shut down your breathing and that's how people die Mm. so respiratory depression is you know essentially what happens in an overdose people's breathing rate slows down so much that it stops entirely and that process is controlled by the brainstem by the same receptors so the same receptors that are in your PAG turning off, you know, pain for your whole body are also in your brainstem controlling your breathing rate. And so it's not only those two areas, but, you know, like you said, I stopped taking these drugs after my ACL tear because I felt stupid. They were making me dumb. And the reason for that is these receptors are also in your prefrontal cortex. All of your brain regions that are used for making decisions and, you know, like being a functional human, if you turn off all the brain activity at the level of the opioid receptor there, then of course you're going to get some cognitive impairment. And this is something that we unfortunately don't talk enough about with the opioids. You know, like I was testifying in the state house in Jefferson City in Missouri one time. And, you know, uh, one of the um, chairmen was asking me, well, what about all the cognitive impairment, you know, that comes from cannabis and, you know, like people, you know, driving while high and all of this stuff that they were, you know, worried about. I'm like, well, no one ever talks about like how many people in this courtroom right now took an opioid before they got in their car and drove 60 miles to get here. You know, like this, this element of cognitive impairment that you're talking about is a very real side effect of opioids. So, you know, opioids would be great drugs if they only acted on the descending pain pathway, but they have all of these other unintended consequences, constipation, respiratory depression, cognitive impairment, addiction, because they're binding to receptors that are not just in the brain's pain pathway, but they're binding to the receptors indiscriminately. So, you know, especially that last component, the addiction component, opioids are better than any other substance at totally hijacking the brain regions that are involved in reward and reinforcement. So those are very fundamental brain processes where, you know, if something activates this circuitry, this reward circuitry, you know, the perception at the level of the organism is, ooh, that was good. I should do that again. Mm -hmm. Right? So that's the reward. And the reinforcement is, you know, continuing to engage in that behavior because of the reward. So um, 
opioids are particularly good at hijacking those processes so that the opioids feel better and over time become more important than anything else that activates that system naturally. You know, the opioids become more important than food. Opioids become more important than lasting relationships. Opioids become more important than, you know, what your neighbors think of you. Opioids become more important than your job. So, you know, that's where all of these unintended consequences happen from pain control is that, you know, the opioids aren't just binding to the brain's pain receptors. They're binding to all the receptors that control all of these other very important processes. Well, now, now you've like uh, totally unraveled all the all the impressiveness I had earlier for it because now it just sounds like a messy drug. Totally, it is. It's a super messy drug. Yeah. So, um, before we go to our first commercial break, um, you know, people started turning against opioids, or at least. In, publicly in the media, when people started getting an understanding of the uh, the level of abuse in our country and how quickly people were moving from um, pharmaceuticals to street drugs because they were more affordable and in many places more accessible since you don't need a prescription. And, you know, so, so people realize that our, our country has got a chronic addiction problem with opiates. But then that seems to have created an environment where some in the medical establishment have finally kind of taken the risk of saying, oh, yeah, and they don't really work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, you, you really have to dig for that. It's not usually something that's in the first paragraph or the first couple paragraphs of an article. It's like down in like paragraph 10, right? And they said, oh, and by the way, you know, um, is it true that that the medical establishment is starting to kind of turn away from the efficacy of opioids? I think finally, yes. You know, I think for a very, very, very long time, there were, you know, like us fringe weirdos, you know, scientists on on the side saying, hey, opioids cause hyperalgesia. That means they make pain worse. You know, hey, opioids actually, you know, like all of these other negative side effects, they outweigh the benefits. But, you know, like our our little fringe voices that are, you know, clearly based on the evidence that we've been collecting for a long time, our voices, you know, don't matter much in the face of, you know, really hot pharmaceutical reps and, you know, like lobbyists with a lot of money and doctors who don't have the time to devote to, you know, being skeptical and digging through the literature themselves. And they're relying on, you know, the standard of practice from their clinic and the recommendations of the American Pain Society. And they're relying on these pharmaceutical reps to give them the best tools to do their job in the shortest amount of time possible because they only have an average of 13 minutes with each patient. So, so yeah, I, I think that for a long time, you know, we, we knew that opioids weren't effective, you know, over the long term, that their side effects outweighed their benefits. We knew that there were, you know, some fundamental pharmacological problems with them. Um, you know, for, for the basic neuroscientists knew that, you know, oxycodone at the molecular level is no different than heroin. And yet, you know, it it took a a crisis of this magnitude to wake everybody up to the reality that it doesn't matter, you know, if you're using heroin or if you're using oxycodone, 
the results are the same. Your body becomes physically dependent and, you know, you, you have to have some other strategy if you want to have a sustainable and healthy management of chronic pain over the long term. Well, that sounds like a perfect place to end our first set. Thank you, Aidy. So we're going to take a short break and be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is cannabis pharmacologist Aidy Ray. In times like these, when so many cannabis companies are growing their flower in gigantic warehouses and fields using synthetic nutrients, it is good to know that there are authentic California heritage growers using natural farming techniques and sunshine to cultivate cannabis flowers for you. California has produced the best cannabis in the world for generations, and the idea that massively scaled industrial cannabis production could produce the same quality as small batch, lovingly cultivated flowers is just silly. Moontime Medicinals is located in Humboldt County on the lush South Fork of the Eel River watershed in the epicenter of the American cannabis heartland. Moontime Medicinals grows under bright California sun in greenhouses using only natural farming techniques like hugel culture, compost teas, whole food fertilizers, and fermented plant juices. Every part of their growing process plays its own part in nature, and nothing synthetic is injected into the process. The result is big, beautiful cannabis flowers with wide-ranging terpene profiles that taste like great cannabis should. If you live in California, ask your bud tender for Moontime Medicinals and visit Moontime Medicinals on the web and Instagram. Moontime Medicinals is also available as part of the Redwood Roots family. Moontime's whole flowers appear in Redwood Roots curated joint packs alongside other heritage cannabis cultivators like Lady Sativa Farm, Ridgeline Farms, Humboldt Redwood Healing, and others. Moontime Medicinals. Top shelf cannabis grown in harmony with nature. There are lots of good seed makers out there. Every once in a while, someone becomes legendary. The Mendocino, California cannabis breeder called Mandelbrot is one of these people. Mandelbrot was also known as Ra's Truth, and his cultivars are known as the foundation for the Emerald Triangle's world-famous gasoline-scented terpene profile. Back in the day when it was really hard to find quality genetics and education, Mandelbrot was advocating for organic growing techniques and providing exceptional seeds that would sell out as soon as they hit the shelves. Mandelbrot lived too short a life, dying in 2015, but while he was with us, he created several connoisseur-level cannabis masterpieces like Oil Spill, The Truth, and Royal Kush. No matter if you approach growing cannabis more as a toker or a breeder, you will find something that delights you in Mandelbrot's selections. Because while some strains are better to grow or to smoke, Mandelbrot's creations excel in every category, and that's why people keep talking about them even today. Emerald Mountain Legacy continues the Ra's Truth tradition by preserving these coveted genetics for future generations, unchanged as they were originally created in the mid-2000s. Emerald Mountain Legacy also creates tasteful, modern crosses to Mandelbrot's classics. These lines, worked by Mandelbrot's brother Ben, furthers their family's genetics in a spirit that Mandelbrot himself would approve of. Check out the Emerald Mountain Legacy Instagram and website to see photos of these plants and learn more about Mandelbrot and his infamous strains. Emerald Mountain Legacy seeds are available online from seed banks and distributors, including Labyrinth Seed Company, The Regenerative Seed Company, and Pure Sativa. Emerald Mountain Legacy. 
keeping Mandelbrot's legacy alive. For 20 years, Humboldt Seed Company has been family-owned and providing reliable, high-yielding seeds originating in Northern California. While the current trend is to slap one super male into a line of hype strains, Humboldt Seed Company continues to breed with precision and care by doing large sifts and back crosses to emphasize the absolute best traits that a line has to offer. This kind of breeding takes time, talent, and space to work. No matter what kind of aroma you are particularly into, Humboldt Seed will likely have something you'll love. If you love fruit, you can choose from banana, mango, apricot, papaya, blueberry, blood orange, melon, and lemons across their various strains. They have all gas, glue, and classic sour diesel lines as well. Of course, there are the Heritage California strains like OG Kush, Jack Hare, and Headband, and their award-winning Blueberry Muffin is one that delights just about everybody's palate, especially when concentrated. Humboldt Seed Company is proud to bring to market the infamous Freak Show Cultivar 2, which has a great THC high, but looks so much like a fern that some folks can't even identify it as cannabis. It's a plant that really needs to be seen to be believed. If you're looking for well-balanced CBD seeds, Humboldt Seed Company can turn you on to CBD strains that actually have flavor, like the dill and pepper terpenes of Willie G's Lebanese Land Race. Whether you are looking for regular, feminized, or autoflowers, Humboldt Seed Company has the gear to make this your best growing cycle ever. Visit HumboldtSeedCompany.com today to check out their line of vigorous genetics, download their catalog, and find out where you can pick them up. You can also check out their Instagram at The Humboldt Seed Company to check out their gorgeous flowers and the extraordinary freak show plant. Humboldt Seed Company, let them know Shango sent you. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is cannabis pharmacologist, A.D. Ray. So during the first set, we made sure that we were all on the same page about what pain is, how it functions in the body, and what uh, opiates are attempting to do in, uh, in providing some relief. But we're all here because we want options other than opioids, and so that's what we're going to go to in this set. So, so Adi, I know that uh, you you have an expertise in how uh, cannabinoids um, function in the brain, and specifically decreasing the experience of pain. And so, I think that I just want to start just by kind of like tossing you the mic, if you will, and saying, you know, what are the main methods or or modes of operations that some of the cannabinoids that we are familiar with at this point um, are acting in the brain to provide relief in different ways than opioids? Yeah, you bet. So uh, let's start with how they're similar. So, you know, before the break, we talked about the mechanisms by which opioids relieve pain. So they bind to, you know, this area of the brain that I've focused on my entire career, the PAG, periaqueductal gray. So opioids float along and they bind to their receptors like locks fitting or keys fitting into their locks. And cannabinoids work, especially Delta 9 THC. THC works in the exact same way. THC floats along into the PAG and binds to its receptors studded along the outside of these neurons. And what's really fascinating is that the mu opioid receptor, which is the primary pain relieving target, and the CB1 cannabinoid receptor, 
they are cousins. They're both G-protein coupled receptors. That's the kind of protein they are. They have an extremely similar structure and an almost identical function. So they're both coupled. The inside, inside of the cell, they talk to the same sets of messengers, GI, GO proteins. So both of the, you can imagine, you know, on the left hand and the right hand, you have the mu opioid and the CB1 cannabinoid receptor both sitting there like locks waiting for their keys to come along. When those keys bind, the locks change shape a little bit and then release their messengers, and those messengers are identical. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah, that's totally same. cool. I had no idea. Yeah. <laughs> same brain region, same kind of protein, same second messaging system, and the result is also the same. You know, you have, you have a change in neurotransmitter release and a change in the descending control of pain, and that's really the primary way that delta-9-THC relieves pain. It's, it's acting in the exact same place by the exact same way that opioids are working. The difference is everything else. <laughs> so so we, we, we talked how, about how, you know, the opioid receptors don't just live in the PAG. They live in lots of other brain areas and in the brain stem and, you know, inside, you know, the viscera, um, inside your, you know, your internal organ cavity. Um, and CB1 cannabinoid receptors are also everywhere else. But what's really fascinating is that somehow by activating the CB1 receptor with delta-9 THC, yes, you still get some activation of the reward pathway, just like the opioids. You know, you have this, that that's what causes mirth and euphoria. That's what is rewarding and reinforcing about cannabis. It's delta-9 THC binding to CB1 receptors in the brain's reward pathway. However, the difference is that it doesn't hijack the brain's reward pathway in the way that opioids do. It doesn't prioritize cannabis or THC over everything else in life. It also doesn't bind to those receptors in the brainstem, which control respiration. That's why, you know, you can't have a lethal overdose from respiratory depression from THC is because that's just not how it works. It doesn't, it doesn't have anything to do with respiration. So, so yeah, the, the mechanisms fundamentally are identical to how opioids work in terms of, you know, turning off the pain signal at the level of the PAG, the brain's pain headquarters, but the differences lie in everything else. The other really interesting thing about the CB1 receptor in particular, it is that it is the most ubiquitously expressed G protein in the entire brain. What I mean by that is if you, you know, were to dye all of these receptors green and then zoom in and try and find where they are, they look like stars in the sky. They're literally everywhere. It's almost impossible to find a brain tissue that doesn't have some level of expression of the CB1 receptor. And that says less about, you know, what the brain is doing in response to THC, but it says more about how important the CB1 receptor is in evolution. How, if, it is, if it's on every single neuron in our brain, pretty much, what is it doing there? Why is it there? And so, you know, the role that that receptor plays in our everyday function 
is huge. You know, we have endogenous cannabinoids, you know, like 2-AG and anandamide and a whole, you know, set of cousins that are similar. And those little molecules have very important jobs in regulating our brain activity, which regulates all of our homeostatic processes, all of the processes that keep us alive, our metabolism, our circadian rhythm, our responses to stress, our ability to relieve our own pain. So the CB1 receptor has an incredibly important role in all of those homeostatic processes. So for whatever reason, you know, evolution has set it up to where if you, you know, stimulate the mu opioid receptor, you end up with some pretty gnarly consequences. And if you stimulate the CB1 receptor, you end up with, you know, kind of a, a balance of what could potentially be some, you know, risky things, but mostly innocuous things like relieving pain and experiencing mirth and euphoria. Well, first of all, it's, it's so nice to hear somebody actually use the word mirth. Um, <laughs> I, I, I haven't heard that word in a long time. I, and I probably, you know, only read it. So I like that. So, so, um, it's, it's remarkable how many of the same, um, uh, plays I'll say that Delta nine THC has that's in common with the opioids. And somehow it's also, uh, equally as messy and, and not as targeted, but it's the fact that when uh, Delta 9 THC um, is being messy, it's not causing all these other fricking problems that opioids do. And so it's, it's more, it's more benignly messy. Yeah. And you know, what's even crazier about that Shingo is it, it gets even messier and because it gets even messier, it becomes even safer. So what I mean by that is, you know, we, we are capable of ingesting, you know, Delta 9 THC by itself. And that ends up not to be a, a very enjoyable process unless you're like a daily dabber and that's your thing. Great. But that's, that's very few people who really enjoy totally overloading their brains, you know, solely with Delta 9 THC. For most human beings, if they consume THC by itself, it ends up, you know, especially once you get up and over a certain dose, it ends up not being super fun. And so part of the safety and part of the tolerability of cannabis is that Delta 9 THC isn't acting alone. It's being consumed with scores of other biologically active molecules like cannabidiol and all of the terpenes and all of these flavonoids and alcohol or sorry, uh, aldehydes and esters. All of these other molecules that are all working together to make a really messy thing that you know, because you have all of these molecules which are competing for binding sites, some of them are activating processes while others are simultaneously turning things down, what you end up with is a really buffered effect. So if you could imagine, uh, you know, I, I, I love music and, and I think about the world from the perspective of audition mostly. And if you think about, if you have a tone, a pure tone, I want you to imagine like, bee, that gets really old really fast. And it's not particularly pre 
pleasant. And that's like literally a, a, a one trick pony, right? It, it has one job, it does one thing. And that's what, you know, a, an opioid does, or that's what Delta 9 THC does by itself. It's just one note. But then if you start adding in all these other tones and layering it with all these other things, what you end up with is white noise, which is what we use to put babies to sleep, hmm. right? Yeah. So it, that buffered effect, when you have that principal component in there doing its job, very important job, relieving pain, activating CB1 receptors in the PAG, but you add in all these other molecules, which are also promiscuous, um, then you end up with this really buffered effect. And the sum total of all of those different molecules doing their jobs at the same time is that you have a very tolerable experience. So, you know, Ethan, Ethan Russo very frequently, you know, has championed the idea of the entourage effect or the ensemble effect, which is that these molecules work better together than they do in isolation. And, you know, from my perspective, the principal component driving the entourage effect is just tolerability. You are able to reap the medical benefits of cannabis because it is simply more tolerable. Not necessarily that it's more effective, but that it is more tolerable. And that, that tolerability comes from this buffered effect of all of these molecules acting at once. That's great. All right. So we let's go let's circle around and go back to the top of the slide again. So you just took us on this explanatory trip of delta 9 THC and how it works on pain. But as I often tell patients, we have to start over now and talk about cannabidiol because it's not just that cannabis helps pain. It's that cannabis helps pain in multiple different ways. And we really have to treat them independently. So, mm -hmm. so let's go back to the top of the slide and, 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 and would you go through the same process with cannabidiol CBD? Sure. So CBD is a lot more complicated. So there are at least 14 plus known mechanisms of action of CBD in the central nervous system. So Delta 9, it's pretty straightforward. It is a, you know, partial agonist at the CB1 receptor, and that's, that's largely it. But cannabidiol, especially at, you know, a range of doses, does lots of different things. You know, it is, it's actually a partial allosteric modulator, <laughs> a PAM, at both the mu and delta opioid receptors. So what that does is, you know, it puts the receptor in a position where it is more receptive to the endogenous opioids that are there. So just like our body produces anandamide and 2-AG, our body also produces endorphins and kephalins and lots of other peptides that naturally act at our body's opioid receptors. So so cannabidiol binds to the mu opioid receptor, the primary pain relieving target in the brain, to make it more receptive and, and activatable by its endogenous peptides, like the endogenous opioids. So that's at least one mechanism of action that CBD could potentially be having in the central nervous system. However, I think that the, the more profound and direct effect that CBD is having is it is a profoundly anti-inflammatory agent, as is THC, 
as are lots of the other molecules that are found in the cannabis plant. So this is especially why when we have patients who are suffering from some kind of inflammatory condition, um, cannabidiol alone or in combination, especially in combination with you know these other molecules from the plant, um, it's profoundly effective because it is directly acting at those anti-inflammatory you know um, pathways. So you know I, I myself have seen you know the knuckles of patients with rheumatoid arthritis and literally their only thing that they engage in is putting a topical on their knuckles you know every couple of hours every single day and you know you don't have to be a rheumatologist to look at someone's hands and go oh wow yeah you look better <laughs> So, um, so I, I think that, you know, especially for patients who have an inflammatory component to their pain, and we talked earlier about how even neuropathic patients, you know, people with neuropathic pain, often there is an inflammatory component to neuropathic pain. So wherever you have any kind of inflammatory, you know, um, thing going on, cannabidiol is going to be an ally. You know, especially if you're consuming it in a whole plant preparation. You know, I I tend to refer to type three and hemp cannabis as the you know nature's multivitamin for inflammation. You know, it it truly is. You know, it, so much better to take twelve active ingredients that are fighting inflammation from twelve different pathways than just one ibuprofen that does you know anti-inflammation from one pathway alone. Because you know, there just in inflammation, there are lots of different kinds of processes and lots of different kinds of molecules involved. So you know, if you imagine a construction site, you have all of all of these people who are buzzing around, you know, and from a 30,000 foot view, you, you have a, a bunch of construction workers. But when you really dive down in there, you've got the welding guy, you've got the plumber, you've got the electrician, you've got the concrete person, you have the engineer, you know, and so all of these people, yeah, they have different roles, but they're all contributing to this, this main effect. So it's the same thing with inflammation. Yeah, the, the, the main effect is inflammation, but there are all these different molecules involved in that process. And so if you're able to, you know, knock out every one of those roles that's contributing to inflammation, you know, then then you're clearly going to have a better outcome than if you're only going after the electrician. All right. Let's let's talk about a minute about um, how fast this uh, uh, CBD works, because there are two different ways of thinking about CBD helping pain. Um, the first is that. Um, you know, I've got a you know whole plant CBD tincture in front of me, and I take it. And what will the cannabinoids do for me right now in this moment? And you know, lasting for the next you know three hours, shall we say, which is usual efficacy for uh, CBD or any cannabinoid. But then there's this. Then there's this. The second mode, which is people are taking CBD to simply supplement their endocannabinoid system and strengthen it because a properly functioning endocannabinoid system itself, uh, turns down the volume of pain and, you know, helps with the homeostasis of all these different, 
um, key body functions that when they come back into balance, our experience and likelihood of pain is decreased. But that's something, you know, the building up of an endocannabinoid system is something where you need to be taking whole plant CBD for a few weeks before it's really starting to to work on the endocannabinoid system as a whole. So would you tease out the differences in the patient experience of taking CBD about whether or not the patient can take um, whole plant CBD now and get benefits now versus taking CBD now, but taking it every day for the benefit of my endocannabinoid system in the future to decrease my pain. Oh man, Shingo, we're going to need another 90 minutes. This is like, um, first of all, I want to say that I really like to have evidence-based conversations. And frankly, there's very little evidence that CBD does anything acutely. Um, especially at the common doses that people typically take, you know, they're like, Oh, I have my, you know, like whatever, five milligrams in my soda in the morning every day. Um, that, that, that probably does nothing except make someone feel better via the placebo effect or the expectation that it's going to do something, which I am not at all knocking. I love a drug that does absolutely nothing except make you feel better. So there's that component. We are taking this thing, empowering ourselves, taking our health into our own hands, expecting it to help us, expecting it to make us feel better. And lo and behold, it does. That's because our brain is profoundly powerful at creating that experience for ourselves. So I think that that's probably the most immediate benefit that someone could get acutely from taking any dose of cannabidiol is that the knowing that they're taking care of themselves and, you know, they're could be some underlying pharmacology that is actually doing that, um, especially, you know, in a, within a certain dose range or, or after, you know, taking it um, via a, a certain, you know, inhalation route particularly. Um, but the, the reality is that we don't have the clinical studies to tell us what are the acute pain relieving or any other, the, you know, re, uh, medical benefits of cannabidiol. We definitely have evidence to suggest that over time there is some bioaccumulation of CBD in the, in the brain and in the body. Cannabinoids are very lipophilic, so they're stored in the tissue, in our fat tissue, really well. And, you know, it does, after a certain level of accumulation, it ends up with like this slow release. So, you know, we see this with the Dravet patients with, you know, Epidiolex is CBD. And, you know, with the FDA clinical trials, we see that, you know, there, there is a profound benefit, medical benefit of, you know, daily consumption of you know, pretty high doses of CBD. Um, you know, the doses that are given to these kids are pretty whopping and it would be quite expensive to try and recapitulate that on your own. Um, and there are definitely more efficient and, and cost-effective ways to go about it. Um, but, but yes, I, I think that 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 latter part of your hypothesis that maintaining a healthy endocannabinoid system is by far the best way to set your up set yourself up for success for any health condition, pain included. The, the other thing that, you know, we didn't mention was, again, going back to this affective component of pain. Um, so 
CBD is um, psychoactive. So you, you hear all the time like, oh, CBD is not psychoactive. Anything that changes the brain chemistry and the, the physiology of the brain is psychoactive. So we know that CBD is psychoactive because it shuts off seizures. It acts in the brain to change the physiology of the brain to create a beneficial effect. So CBD is psychoactive in that aspect. And one of its other psychoactive properties is that, again, under certain conditions at certain doses, it relieves anxiety. It provides positive, affective, positive emotional support. We also see this in the opioid world because there's a, a researcher at Mount Sinai in New York, Yasmin Hurd, who's been studying CBD for a very long time. And her work demonstrates that in people, CBD profoundly reduces anxiety and that that reduction in anxiety is also associated with a reduction in craving for opioids. So addiction, one of the, one of the primary drivers for drug-seeking behavior when someone is in recovery, when they have been physically dependent on a substance and they're trying to come out of it, one of the primary drug-seeking um, you know, craving triggers is negative emotions. You feel crappy and that feeling is a trigger for seeking drugs. So the, the affective or emotional support that comes from, you know, chronically ingesting CBD, I don't think we can underestimate. I think it's going to be very difficult to measure. Um, but, you know, given what we know from these little bits and pieces from the literature that we do have, I think that it is wise to say that, you know, having a, a rich endocannabinoid system, uh, a supplemented endocannabinoid system, if that's what you need, um, that will provide both, you know, that bodily sensation support that you need, as well as the affective support that you need. That's great. So, so what, I think it's important to, to hit this one more time because I, I really was caught off guard and pleased that you said that taking CBD now does not have an acute effect, meaning it will help you now. And, and actually your, your example of, of taking five milligrams of CBD in your morning soda cracked me up because I'm often telling people, you know, you got to be really careful about how you're taking your cannabinoids because, um, you know, your, your CBD gummies filled with crap sugar and artificial coloring is probably doing worse for you than the CBD that you're trying to get through it. Um, but I think that it's Im important for us to understand that Taking cannabidiol um, is a, a long-term commitment and that if you want to get relief from it, you've got to, you know, you can't just take it when you're feeling bad. It's important to take it every day on a, on a regular schedule. And heck, if you can take it every day, small doses, two or three times a day, that's even better because um, you will metabolize more of it. Um, but the 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 overall idea that yes take cannabidiol to help your endocannabinoid system 
but also don't forget that you should be doing the lifestyle changes that are necessary so that you ease off the trauma that you're giving your endocannabinoid system so that you don't have to take CBD forever. You know, a lot of people, they start taking CBD and they get these great effects and then they're like, oh, I'm feeling so much better. And then they get off of it and then they feel like crap again. And they're like, oh my God, am I going to have to take CBD the rest of my life? Mm -hmm. And I say, and I, and I say, you know, you don't necessarily have to, but you're probably going to have to start exercising and getting proper sleep and not drinking coffee, you know, totally. <laughs> and then, and then they're all like, screw that. I'll, I'll buy CBD, you know? Right, right. You're absolutely right in that, you know, CBD is far more like a micronutrient than it is a drug. So, you know, we think of taking a drug, I'm going to take this and I'm going to feel better, right? And especially in America, that is our expectation. That is why we have a healthcare system built around commerce. Give me the thing, make me feel better now. That is, that is our culture of medicine. Um, and that is not how CBD works. CBD works more like, you know, omega-3s. And it's actually not that dissimilar from omega-3s structurally. So, you know, we don't take fish oil when we have a headache, right? So we're not expecting fish oil to like miraculously make us feel better in 30 to 90 minutes. It's a nutrient and it's a part of our lifestyle where if we're deficient in some way, if we don't have the diet or we don't have the lifestyle to provide us that kind of nutrient by some other means, we have to supplement it by taking fish oil. It's the exact same thing with cannabidiol. If you're not stimulating your own endogenous cannabinoid system through, like you said, exercise, sleep, a balanced diet, um, acupuncture, all of these other things that mimic the endocannabinoid system, support the endocannabinoid system without the plant-derived cannabinoids. If you're not doing those things, then clearly, yeah, you've, you've got to make up for it by taking CBD as a micronutrient on a very regular basis. And if you're going to be taking it on a regular basis, it's going to be expensive. So you might as well find out how to take it in a way that's economical. So, you know, there's tons of products out there that are orally ingested, you know, like you can eat something or drink something that has cannabidiol in it. And the the sad fact is that only about 5% of what you swallow ends up making it into your bloodstream. CBD has terrible oral bioavailability. That means if you put it in your mouth and you swallow it, hardly any of it is getting to your brain and the rest of your body. Something like the lungs, you know, you've got about 50% bioavailability. So if you look at, you know, how much does it cost you to, you know, vaporize a kilo of hemp flour versus how much does it cost you to, you know, ingest 300 milligrams um, or rather 300 grams of CBD if we're talking like a a 30%, you know, cannabinoid content, um, you know, like that's a lot of oil. That's really expensive. So, you know, thinking about more efficient ways to utilize that micronutrient to support your endocannabinoid system, you know, is a good thing unless you are also using it in combination with all these lifestyle factors. And then, like you said, you won't need to use it forever. Let's tease out one bit about uh, using CBD orally because I agree with you up to a point. And the point is, um, you know, a lot of these 
oral solutions, and, and we'll talk more about this during the third set, but a lot of these oral solutions like, like capsules and, and various edibles that have got CBD added to them, you eat them and for that CBD to become accessible to the human, they have to go through your gut and eventually through your liver and, um, you know, it takes time, plus you're getting all the other, you know, random sugars along the way. So, you know, it's a long road to go. In contrast, um, I find that patients get good results with a uh, whole plant ethanol extracted tincture because when they are put, putting it in their mouth, whether sublingually or not, the ethanol acts as such an effective carrier for cannabinoids that the CBD is actually making the jump through the mucosal membranes and the tongue and the cheek and the esophagus. And by the time the, you know any remaining fluid of the tincture gets down to the small intestine, it's already been soaked in other places. So what... What what do you think about that delineation? Shango, thank you. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Good. Thank you so much because there are so many products out there that are labeled as a tincture, which are, you know, uh, it is a cannabinoid, which is an oil, in an oil. And that's not the same thing as a cannabinoid suspended in a solvent like ethanol. And you're absolutely right. If you have some kind of oil in order, and if or if you have two bottles of tincture, let's say, one of them is oil and one of them is ethanol. Either way, your best bet at getting those cannabinoids into your blood is right in your mouth. And so, if you're going to use an oil-based, you know, quote unquote tincture, then you have to use it more like a topical. You have to put it under your tongue and you have to use your tongue to rub it in. You have to rub it in under your gums, into your cheeks. You have to actually, it really is more of a topical than it is a, you know, orally ingested product. Um, and you're right that with the ethanol, there might be some chance of enhanced permeability right there in the buccal tissue, the, the tissue on the side of your cheek, right in the sublingual tissue. You've got a ton of blood vessels in there. Wouldn't it be great if you could just take the cannabinoids and shove them right into all those blood vessels? inside your mouth yeah that's the idea so oral bioavailability typically refers to when a drug is swallowed that's you know clinically what what we talk about when when we're t looking at an oral preparation that's a preparation that's swallowed which is kind of different than a preparation that is absorbed in the mouth which is you know a far more efficient way to to take cannabidiol Fantastic. All right. So we, we will pick up that topic again in the third set when we're talking about dosing and methods. But there's one more thing I want to hit on before we go to our second commercial break. And um, and I know that you are very evidence-based, and so you may not have a lot to say about cannabigerol, but I do want to talk about CBG because uh, I was lucky enough to uh, get my hands on um, a, a high CBG, no THC plant material about a year and a half ago um, that was part of a, a R&D seed grow in Oregon. And oh, is that Seth's Seth type four? Seth Crawford? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, all right. Well, we might as well. I was not, I wasn't going to out him, but yeah, this is, this is the, this is the <laughs> stuff developed by Seth and Eric Crawford at Oregon CBD. 
um, there in Oregon and, uh, it's fantastic stuff. So, um, uh, I was able to get some of this, uh, because they know that I work a lot with patients and that I run a lot of dosing trials because I think that one of the biggest challenges with, um, patients using cannabinoids is that everyone's using totally uncontrolled dosing and they're just taking some, right. And, Mm -hmm. and one of the things that, is important about any kind of medicine is repeatable results. Anyway, Mm -hmm. so what I I got this material and I did ethanol extractions and we made uh, a bunch of uh, tinctures and um, I'll say RSO. So people know what I'm talking about, but really we're talking about full extract cannabis oil. And, um, and so we did a bunch of dosing trials um, here on Vashon Island with, uh, with pain patients and because uh, it, it, it was said in, in some you know casual early CBG studies that it was really great for neuromuscular pain, and I'm like, all right, well you know CBG is going to be the hot novel cannabinoid. Let's find out how to actually take this stuff so that when I talk to people, I actually have my own firsthand knowledge. Great. So we we you know I make make this questionnaire, and I and I and I take the tinctures and the RSO, and we cap a bunch of it up, and we give it to a lot of patients. And and absolutely, we got positive response from people regarding their pain, and um, it, it it tends to act like a non intoxicating delta nine THC as far as the patient experience. But where I'm going with it is is this next part. The part that was really startling was that everyone said that it put them in a better mood. And so, you know, I teased that out with folks and it was decreasing people's anxiety about having pain at all. And, and when you tease that out more, this is how I I explain it now to folks is that, you know, people turn to cannabis for anxiety and pain, but, but THC tends to slather you know, I mean, I, I understand that that generally we're looking for doses of THC that you don't actually feel, right? That don't cause intoxication. But mm-hmm. but at this point, few people take it that way, right? Most people think right. you're not a little high; it doesn't work. So so based on people's actual experiences, um, you know, delta nine THC slathers a little bit of intoxication over your anxiety and pain, and you know, does decrease your pain and acts as a distractant. Um, but, but, you know, involves some intoxication and then the CBD, it doesn't work for today, but it's going to work for next month. If you take it for, you know, every day for the next month, CBG is a different category. It actually makes the patients feel like they are capable of handling their day or their pain with, with the resources and abilities they have in front of them. And the patient said, you know, like my pain is the same as yesterday, but I feel like I can just fricking handle it more because of the change in attitude. And so they're all like, I think that I'm having some pain relief, but I can tell you one thing, I can cope with my pain a lot better and I love CBG for pain relief. And then with that, we, we kind of did a, a, a secondary you know, trial of people who had uh, extreme daily background anxiety and performance anxiety, and they took to it like a duck to water. They were like, "Oh my gosh, this stops my ruminating and and um, and you know, uh, fear of social situations and and these things." This is all a big setup to to, to ask you, as somebody who studies 
you know, the pharmacological aspect of these cannabinoids, have you seen any either, you know, legitimate peer-reviewed um, evidence for what I'm describing or even some significant anecdotal or, or heck, since you know how these mechanisms work, I, I could imagine you might go, oh, there aren't any studies, but from what you described, I bet you ABC is happening. So mm -hmm. I'm just going to hand that, that whole explanation to you on a big platter and say, what do you think? Yeah. So we'll start with the evidence that we do have, which is preclinical. So in Petri dishes and animals and CBG is, you know, kind of like cannabidiol. It is non-intoxicating and it is psychoactive. It It is, you know, very similar to CBD. Um, we don't, it is not nearly as deeply studied as cannabidiol. So we don't know exactly, you know, all the mechanisms of action, which proteins it's interacting with. Um, but in general, you know, it is antioxidative and anti inflammatory, you know, it looks like it's doing good things and not bad things to the brain. So, you know, at a very fundamental molecular level, there does seem to be some kind of basis that this could be a profoundly therapeutic molecule because it looks like it does a lot of good things without causing impairment. Um, you know, with that said, the anecdote that you just told me is the deepest and most wide anecdote that I have ever heard about CBG because to date it has been nigh impossible to get a enough of it to actually give to a human being at a dose that would do something. Um, so, you know, this is changing now because, you know, I think now we have this year will be really the first time that we have large commercial operations, which are growing type four CBG dominant cultivars. Um, and we'll have the opportunity to do this, you know, sort of real world scientific experiment of putting this stuff in our bodies and watching what happens. Um, so I, I do think that there is some fundamental basis for it to be a profoundly therapeutic molecule. Um, but we also, you know, again, we, we don't have any evidence to look at either the acute or the chronic chronic effects for either affective support or, um, you know, pain relief. Um, the other thing I will say, and I, you know, like I always lean on this because it's so true and I don't lean on it in a in a negative way to downplay the power of pharmacology. I clearly am a cannabis pharmacologist. <laughs> I believe in these <laughs> molecules, but I also equally believe in the power of the brain and what we know about all drugs, any drug is the newer it is, the more profound the placebo effect is. So your, you know, small test cases that you do with your, your patients on Vashon, do they know what they're getting? Do they know that it contains CBG? Well, they, they knew at the beginning of the study that it was a new novel cannabinoid called CBG, but they did not know what the effects were supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, so I... I and I, I, cer and I certainly didn't prime them for this anxiety stuff, which I wasn't even looking for myself, right? Totally. But I also think about, you know, like what ails people generally. And if, if you're a chronic pain patient, it's both about that bodily sensation of pain as well as, you know, like we talked about earlier, that affective component of pain, yeah. which is inseparable from the bodily suffering. So, you know, I, I, I approach this, you know, from, uh, like you said, you know, I really appreciate the evidence and, and it, wouldn't it be lovely if we could do, you know, double blind placebo controlled crossover clinical trials with this stuff? Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> totally. As a matter, um, as a matter of fact, you know, Dr. Ethan Russo uh, happens to live on the same island that I do. And um, I actually told him what I was doing and I described it to um, him and 
and and and he, he kind of raised his eyebrow because he's he's you know he's all like well that he says you're using this term study he says this is this isn't really a study you know <laughs> you're just kind of giving it to people and asking them questions and I'm like yeah a study and so you know there, the, yeah there there was no there was no double blindedness or peer reviewedness to this right but I totally understand you know dosing protocols I want to recommend to people now which was the actual point. For sure. And I, I also want to say that everything we know about cannabis started from anecdotes. You know, 20 years ago, patients were coming into their doctor's offices and saying, hey, doc, when I smoke a joint before bed, I don't need to use my Dilaudid. Or, you know, like I've, I've noticed that since I started smoking cannabis, I use half as many opioids. And those anecdotes all collected into community-defined evidence. And that community-defined evidence grew to a point where we were able to, you know, do more closely controlled experimental trials. And so... All of this stuff has value, heuristic value, if nothing else, in that it it allows us to go down a line of questioning, well, huh, isn't that interesting that, you know, these chronic pain patients who experience anxiety have this, you know, what looks to be a very profound therapeutic effect. Why don't we dig into that a little deeper? So I think there's a ton of value in this, um, you know, both from a, you know, cellular molecular level, there's rationale there, and there's definitely rationale to listen to the people and when what they're saying is real and it's worth looking into. A lot of uh, my scientist friends, when I talk with them, say we're at Emerald Cup or something, and which, which pulls cannabis researchers and scientists and doctors from all over the world, and we get together, you know, a lot of them talk a lot of trash about citizen scientists, right? Essentially what I'm doing. And they're all like, yeah we understand what you're doing, but there doesn't have a lot of value to it. And, and I'm actually a big proponent for citizen science that, that like, let's all work at home on our own. And, and especially since cannabis is federally illegal and, and getting the research approved is so difficult. Let's, let's start doing this research on our own. And then as it becomes more commonplace in the population, when legit research scientists go to divine their studies, they'll go like, well, you know, I've heard this thing anecdotally. Let's go ahead up and, and fire up the funding machine and get the university to do this study. But that wouldn't have necessarily been indicated without regular nobodies doing it on their own first. For sure. And the other component to that is that, you know, when we do clinical trials, we have a very long list of exclusion criteria. You know, you have to be pretty neurotypical and you have to have a pretty narrow range of conditions and you can't have abused drugs in the past and you can't have a this and you have to be this and you have to be a certain age. So we have a very lengthy list of exclusion criteria, which means that we're self-selecting. Yeah, that drug might work in this population that you have, you know, developed a rigorous exclusion criteria for and it only works for them. But what about everybody else? What about all these other people who lie all over the place on the neurotypical spectrum? you know, and who have all of these other com comorbidities and who have all of these, you know, traumatic childhoods. Um, you know, so that that's also a really great thing about, you know, a large but messy data set is that if you do have an effect 
which is profound, you're going to detect it in both populations. You know, if a drug really works, it should work for everybody, no matter what their, you know, neurotype or, or background or underlying conditions, um, rather than, you know, some drug that only works for this very, very narrowly defined, you know, like population of people. I want to hit on one other thing about, um, you know, you mentioned that last summer was the first summer that cannabigerol was in commercial, um, you know, acre, acres and acres of it were grown mm -hmm. um, with, with those Oregon CBD seeds all over the country. And um, I was very excited because while I got my sample for these tests um, almost two years ago now, um, I was all like, all right, great. I'll do this stuff now. And then at the end of the summer 2019, um, there'll be all these whole plant oils coming to market and I can send people to purchase them and it'll be like this new, new arrow in the quiver. And I'll be damned. I was very disappointed to see that the vast majority of the people who grew CBG they ended up um, making single molecule isolate out of it and, mm -hmm. and using it to spike edibles and things like that. And as, as you've mentioned several times uh, during this episode so far, you know, these cannabinoids, especially the novel ones, are um, they work their best in the presence of other cannabinoids. And so I feel like, you know, CBG grown in volume at acres was made, was extracted into isolate for the monetary value and ease of, of integrating it into products. And yet again, patients lose out because what they really needed to do was turn all that stuff into whole plant, uh, full extract ethanol oil, put it in capsules and give it to people so that it was actually effective. Yeah, and I mean, like, you're right, but you're also like fighting economic. You're fighting commercial, you know. Success. This this is not new for <laughs> me or this show, eighty. <laughs> you know, like commerce is and commerce does, and you know, like what is best for the patients is not necessarily the same. Um, you know, but I am encouraged because, you know, this is, you know, one more frontier that we get to go down. Well, what happens when we have that full cannabis extract? What happens when we have it, you know, in large doses and capsules? What happens if we, you know, can somehow uh, vaporize that flower? Um, you know, I don't, I don't know a lot about the phenotype of that flower. I've never had a, a chance to encounter it myself or even look at a, a certificate of analysis. But, you know, I, I could imagine how it could potentially be at least right now and in, in this stage, a relatively low yielding plant in terms of, you know, what is the cannabinoid per gram? Um, but, uh, but I don't know. So, so maybe that's the thing too. We, maybe we need to get it, you know, hybridized into these like really oil rich, you know, rather than just biomass producing plants, these oil producing plants, maybe that'll help, you know, popularize it. Um, so I, I, I'm excited because I do think that this is a really interesting molecule and we have a long way to go with it. Very good. So last thing before we go to commercial, um, are there any other cannabinoids or constituents of cannabis that you see coming down the line that we should look out for for um, uh, dealing with pain? I mean, there's, there's, there's a slew of cannabinoids, but there's almost no research on, on the vast majority of them. Um, but but what, what do you, anything you want to flag for us to make sure that we keep an eye out for the future? 
Yeah, I think there are two big ones. And, you know, if you are a nerd for the literature like I am, they've been there all along and it shouldn't be a huge surprise. But the evidence is like profound, like beta caryophyllene is a full agonist at the CB2 receptor. So it's not a cannabinoid per se, but it is a cannabinoid in that it is a full agonist at a cannabinoid receptor. <laughs> mm. um, so beta caryophyllene, you know, is profoundly anti-inflammatory, has tons of therapeutic potential, and it's abundant. Um, so I think that, you know, this one in particular could be playing a really important role in pain relief, especially because of the mechanisms of pain and inflammation in particular. So at basal conditions, when you have a normal, healthy organism, the CB2 receptor is pretty silent. There's not much of it around, so much so that for a long time, even at the International Cannabinoid Research Society, ICRS, um, that's the the main professional scientific society in the cannabis and cannabinoid sphere. Um, ICRS, you know, still to this day, there's a little bit of debate about is the CB2 receptor even present in the brain? And that's because under normal conditions, no, it's not, it's, there's no need for it. But when you have chronic drug exposure, chronic stress, chronic inflammation, you know, any kind of insult to the organism, these things bloom like crazy. Expression of the CB2 receptor goes up, you know, under any kind of, you know, insult or injury. And so particularly in those conditions, if you have all those receptors sitting around waiting for their, you know, little key to come float in and activate it, maybe beta caryophylline could be a good, you know, component to introduce um so it's not a particularly sexy one because it's everywhere but it is it is you know it has a lot of promise um the other one that there's some preclinical evidence for is um tetrahydrocannabinavarin thcv um so that one especially in combination with other cannabinoids does look like there's a, a large amount of promise i think it's a few years behind cannabigerol um and i definitely don't know anyone who's you know trying to cultivate thcv dominant plants but certainly there's some, some like semi-synthetic folks out there working with yeast who are trying to produce this, you know, at scale. Um, and I think THCV um, has a lot of promise as well. I also think, and again, this one's like not super sexy because it's so obvious, THCA so, you know, the acid form, the non-decarboxylated version of THC, this thing's profoundly anti-inflammatory. Um, but again, it goes back to that sort of micronutrient territory where if you have, you know, low but consistent ingestion or, or somehow, you know, putting the non-intoxicating THC into your body and supporting the endocannabinoid system, you know, that way as from a micronutrient perspective, um, that also has a lot of promise. You know, there are tons of patient stories out there of people who have been, you know, preparing their own non-intoxicating sort of cannabinoid rich, you know, hemp seed elixirs for many years. Um, and, you know, it seems to be at least anecdotally um, that, you know, that has, that has worked for them to manage, you know, chronic, chronic diseases. Um, so those are some of the big ones, you know, the acid form of THC, the, the non-decarboxylated form, um, beta caryophyllene um, and THCB. Fantastic. Thank you, AD. We're going to go ahead and take that last short break and be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is cannabis pharmacologist, AD Ray. 
Pre-rolls have come a long way since the early days of normalization. When you choose Saints Joints, you are smoking all-flower, top-shelf pre-rolls with terpenes that will sculpt your high in a way that dry, old pre-rolls just can't. Whereas most brands release pre-rolls as an afterthought, for the last five years, Saints Joints has focused on their line of exotic, curated joints. And while some companies just chase the hype strains, Saints Joints goes deeper, searching out hard-to-find strains, unexpected crosses, and nearly forgotten land races and classics. And some hype ones, too. Not only does a joint from Saints smoke incredibly well, they have fine-tuned every step of the process so you don't get runs in the paper, the joint is just the right density to have a nice pull, and the joint stays lit, even if you get a bit chatty. Saints joints boxes are works of art and will spark conversation when you pull them out at a party. Saints award-winning boxes change with every release, feature edgy outsider art, and often raise awareness of important issues like equal rights. Saints boxes are so desired that many collect them and display them in their homes. Ask your bud tender for Saints joints and have a premium joint experience. Now, if you are a licensed cannabis cultivator, I have an extra message for you. Saints is looking for partners in legal cannabis states to expand the availability of the Saints Joints brand. Do you grow exceptional cannabis flower but are less excited about all the effort, cost, and risk of launching your own brand? Saints Joints may be just the partner you are looking for. Already established in California, Washington, and Oklahoma, and recognized by Entrepreneur Magazine and Green Entrepreneur as a cannabis industry leader, the Saints Joints brand will set you apart in your home market. The best thing I can recommend is for you to visit their Instagram at Saints Joints and look at their patented drawer design boxes. Become that brand everyone is talking about without having to build it from scratch. Check out the Instagram at Saints Joints and then visit saintsjoints.com to find out more. This message is for folks who grow cannabis. I'm talking to home growers, patients, and commercial growers too. I'm probably talking to you. When you plan out your next growing cycle, be sure to check out Humboldt CSI Seeds at HumboldtCSI.com. Caleb Inspecta and his family have lived in Humboldt County for over 100 years. For the last 40 years, three generations of his family have cultivated extraordinary Sensamia cannabis in Humboldt, Mendocino, and Trinity Counties. Because of his lineage and the hard-earned experience that comes from growing up smoking and sifting large populations of cannabis plants in Northern California, the seeds you'll cop from CSI will be winning genetics based on longtime heavy hitters and updated and resifted to bring out new and exotic traits and better yields. Go ahead and ask around. Caleb, also known as Inspecta and Pirates of the Emerald Triangle, is a breeder's breeder. He reaches way back and works with significant strains, recreating them in new and interesting ways that you'll love as a toker and a grower, as well as offering you some surprises that will delight serious seed traders and cultivators. Humboldt CSI goes a further step and selfs all these chemovars so you know all the seeds will be female. These are not experimental feminized seeds. Humboldt CSI releases some of the best female seeds available anywhere, and it will show in your garden. Folks grew quite a bit of CSI Humboldt Gen X last year here on Vashon Island, and everyone was pleased. The patients had beautiful female plants and didn't have to cull half of their garden as males. The folks growing for the fun of getting high grew colorful flowers with exceptional bag appeal and great highs. 
And breeders had seven out of seven females in a pack, which gave them a lot of phenotypic choices. Take a moment right now and visit HumboldtCSI.com. You'll find an up-to-date menu of both feminized and regular lines, along with photos and descriptions. That's HumboldtCSI.com. Did you know that Shaping Fire has a fabulous YouTube channel with content not found on the podcast? When I attend conventions or speak or moderate panels, I always record them and bring the content home for you to watch. The Shango Los YouTube channel has world-class speakers, including Kevin Jodry of Wonderland Nursery, talking about breeding cannabis for the best terpene profile. Nicholas Mahmood on regenerative and polyculture cannabis growing. Dr. Sunil Agarwal on the history of cannabis medicine around the world. Ben Cassidy of True Terpenes on using terpenes for health in your everyday life. Reggie Godino of Steep Hill on the cannabis genome. And Jeff Lowenfels on the soil food web. There are several presentations from Dr. Ethan Russo on terpenes and the endocannabinoid system, and even my own presentation on how to approach finding your dream job in cannabis and why we choose cannabis business even though the risks are so high. As of today, there are over 100 videos that you can check out for absolutely free. Go to youtube.com forward slash Shango Los or click on the link in this week's newsletter. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is cannabis pharmacologist, A.D. Ray. So here we are in the third set, and we want to go through dosing and methods of taking in your cannabinoids, because now that you perhaps have these ideas that you, that you might want to replace your opiates with cannabis, one of the hardest things is figuring out what the hell to do next. So, so we're going to go through a couple of the different common methods for ingesting or taking in cannabinoids and, uh, and, and we'll kind of riff on each of those so that we can, uh, we can all kind of learn together. So, so Adi, I know from watching your other presentations that you are not particularly a fan of smoking and, uh, I mean, for, for, for medicinal, right? We all love to smoke, smoke, but, but actually as far as it being uh, medicinally, um, effective, um, would you explain, um, why that's, that's what you teach? Yeah. So, I mean, that, that, the basis for that is purely from polyaromatic hydrocarbons, from things that are potential carcinogens, you know, putting burnt plant material inside of your body is less healthy than not putting burnt plant material inside your body. However, that being said, I'm, I've always been a firm believer that the best kind of medicine is the one you will take. So if smoking cannabis feels like medicine to you and it is the, the, the path of least resistance to getting medicine into your body, then you're better off with the medicine than without it. Um, for a lot of people, smoking simply doesn't feel like medicine. It was never part of their culture. It was always frowned upon. There's some fear and shame and there's a lot of war on drugs stuff happening there. And smoking simply is not going to work for them. The benefits of smoking are really the benefits of inhalation, which is an immediate onset. Here you have an activated molecule, and delta-9-THC in particular has to be decarboxylated. It has to be converted from its acid, acid inactive form to its you know, decarboxylated active form. So THCA has to be converted into THC. So to do that, you have to apply heat 
and the easiest you know way for thousands of years to apply heat to the cannabis plant is to set it on fire so the the benefit of smoking is that you have an activated thc which goes directly into your freshly oxygenated blood supply which goes directly up to your brain which is exactly why it has an immediate effect and for someone who is experiencing for instance breakthrough cancer pain Nothing is going to help better than to have an immediate relief of that pain. So anything that can, you know, literally instantaneously shut off the pain, that's amazing. And so if smoking does that for you, great. Um, there are other ways of inhaling the cannabinoids that don't involve, you know, the burnt plant material that, you know, can potentially cause other health effects. And when I say other health effects, you know, there are known um, side effects of smoking cannabis. Although we have yet to see any, you know, sort of cancer or lung cancer come out of chronically smoking cannabis, like we see with, you know, chronic you know, tobacco smoking clearly causes cancer. That's gnarly. But what we do see are, you know, COPD, chronic inflammatory, you know, um, respiratory issues. We see, you know, coughing. We see phlegm production. So it's not to say that smoking is totally unsafe, but it's also not totally safe. So there's still other ways of reaping the benefits of inhaled cannabinoids without exposing yourselves to all of those, um, the, the toxins and the irritants that lead to all of those other, you know, inflammatory conditions. I'll go ahead and add to that too, that for a lot of people, I mean, your example of, of cancer-related pain and the immediate succession of pain is spot on. And yet, um, there are a lot of patients who are taking uh, either uh, THC for other types of pain or, uh, or maybe they're looking for CBD, where smoking it has that very fat, fast effect. It fills your lungs, it's instantly in your brain, and you go up fast. That's not necessarily what everybody who is fighting, say, for example, inflammatory pain is looking for. Mm -hmm. um, taking, um, say, a tincture or something uh, or, or a topical where the cannabinoids uh, enter the body at a slower rate. So instead of going up and getting this peak and then slowly coming down, you instead have this slow um, this slow pathway up and then the slow pathway down, it'll tend to you know last for longer and allow you to be more productive, right? Because so many pain patients, they still have got to go to work and, mm -hmm. and, and, and it's hard to titrate or control your dosage um, when you're smoking. And so people are like, oh, I'm going to smoke. And then they're like, shit, now I can't go to work because I'm freaking baked. You know, and right. so for those yeah. for those folks, they should definitely be aware that um, in addition to not scorching your lungs, uh, you know, some of these other options that we're going to talk about may be better for you because they are um, going to be less intoxicating. Right. And so there, I think that for all of these methods of administration, there are really three major components that we can talk about, right? Where you're managing impairment. You're also talking about the onset of the effect, how quickly it works, as well as the duration of the effect, how long it works. So, you know, one other element of, you know, 
pain relief is, you know, a lot of chronic pain patients have a lot of trouble sleeping. They have a difficulty falling asleep because they're in pain. They have difficulty staying asleep because their pain wakes them up in the middle of the night. And so just from a sleep management perspective, smoking is probably not the best idea because the, the peak, the onset might be, you know, almost immediate, but the duration of that effect is really not very much, you know, two to three hours if you're lucky. So you really do for something like, you know, where you need a long-term effect, you know, something that's going to get you through a good six hours, smoking isn't going to be the best for you because you need something with a longer duration. You know, just as a little side note, one of these days, somebody's going to figure out a good way to do time-released whole plant uh, capsules, and they're just going to crush the market because, <laughs> you know, I mean, some people use, you know, enteric capsules, which help a little bit, but most of the time to make something time released, you have to overprocess to the point that it's not whole plant anymore. But, but mm-hmm. your description is point right on point because so many pain patients, they'll, they will, they will take whatever cannabis they, they're going to take in the evening and then by you know 2 two thirty in the morning their pain is waking them back up again and so they have to have strategies to um, have a second dose on their nightstand which then occasionally in some people with some cultivars make them feel a little groggy in the morning but mm-hmm. but at some point or worse where worse sometimes too, it can cause tachycardia, right? So, you know, what I mean by that is a racing heart. So ironically, you're trying to go to sleep and yet you, uh, you know, inadvertently consume a little bit too much THC causes this like sympathetic nervous system reaction where your brain interprets, you know, a a fast paced heartbeat as paranoia and anxiety. (laughs) Yeah, I, I hate that. And and also I, I guess it's worthwhile to point out, at least at least my understanding is that the tachycardia is actually most likely uh, attributed to a particular terpene in the plant and not THC directly. And so if you use cannabis and you do get the racing heart, which is something that I hate, um, uh, there are, you, you, you need to try enough to find out what the terpene is for you in those plants and then, and then avoid those plants. And I, I would say that this is kind of the cutting edge of understanding, you know, using whole flour and there's, there's not a lot of research on it, but I think there will be soon. I think you're right too, but I do think that, you know, the the patients who use dronabinol, which is the synthetic form of THC, you know, they, they also experience this. So I think that there probably is some interaction between, you know, just like all of our cannabinoids and terpenes. There's, you know, there's clearly something going on there where, you know, you've got to, for, for any product that you're using and ingesting it by any means, you've got to find that personal therapeutic window, right? You've got to take enough of the stuff to get your good effect without taking so much that you get a bad effect. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. All right, so that's smoking. Let's talk, well, we've already talked quite a bit about tincture, but let's talk about tincture. Um, so, you know, a lot of people like tinctures because they feel much more in control, right? With with smoking, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's really hard to control how much you're actually going to take. And with, uh, you know, things like capsules, you're kind of beholden to whatever they put in the capsule. But with tinctures, um, this is very much individualized medicine. You're able to say, okay, you know, this, this lab tested tincture, I know the potency of it. And 
so I'm going to slowly increase my, uh, my dosage over the next few days. And then I'm going to find my sweet spot. And then I know it's going to be, you know, X amount of a dropper or X amount of, you know, drops themselves so that you can get repeatable results. And, um, for me, that's why I generally, you know, recommend tinctures for people because of the patient control. Yeah, I I love tinctures for several reasons. One of them is that, you know, like you said, it does feel like medicine to people. You know, like for a lot of people, my grandparents age, you know, I'm lucky enough that my grandmother is still alive. Um, and, you know, like there's absolutely no way like she would even use something that looked like an inhaler to inhale cannabinoids. But a tincture like that feels like med- medicine to her. So she'll actually use it. And, you know, you can't benefit from a medicine that you are are opposed to using. Um, so there's that component, the easily titratable, easily dosable, reliable results. Those are all amazing. The other thing that I like about some of these tinctures is that, you know, depending on the formulation, it can act as somewhat of a hybrid between a product that's available both immediately in your mouth. And if you swallow some of it and it does get all the way through the liver, then you have, you know, like a two for one where you have the immediate onset, you know, from some of the THC to, you know, produce some sedation, whereas you have that sort of slow release effect from the, from the liver and the, you know, converting Delta nine into other, you know, metabolites, um, that gives you this more prolonged slow release effect. So you have both immediate onset and a long duration, um, which is, you know, really not achievable through any other product. One of the things that I find very liberating about tinctures is that even though there are certainly, you know, artisan and craft ways to make a good ethanol tincture that is going to be potentially better than, you know, a novice tincture maker. I like the fact that it is a process that's available to everyone, right? Anybody can grow their own cannabis plants in their yard. They can take the flower they can pour, you know, Everclear ethanol over the top, you know, shake it for 90 seconds, uh, uh, strain it through a coffee filter. And guess what? You just made your own tincture. And sure, there's, there's, you know, there's fancier ways to go about it by like freezing everything first and all that kind of stuff. But essentially, if you just pour ethanol over your flower, and strain it, you have made tincture. And um, depending on what state you live in, um, many uh, many state cannabis labs will, will allow patients to get things tested. And so you can find out how strong what you made uh, is as well. And I think that that kind of, I don't know, I guess I'll call it egalitarian um, mm-hmm. pharmacology <laughs> is, is something <laughs> that's that. it's, it's, it's very attractive to me. Um, because I I do not support the ivory tower medicine idea. I mean, I guess we already established that with the whole citizen scientist thing. But tinctures are great because you can have control of your own health by growing your own plant, making your own tincture, and and now you are self sufficient. And it's wildly less expensive than mm-hmm. purchasing it either licensed or unlicensed. Totally. I, and I, the word that I use for this is empowerment. And I think that, you know, it's, it's beyond just the not being reliant upon someone else, but there's like 
when you see a project through from beginning to end, and I see this with my trainees and my students all the time, you have investment in it. When you, you know, pop that seed, when you drop that clone in the soil, when you are tending to that plant, when you are, you know, looking for signs of maturity, when you are harvesting it with your own hands, you know, you have a lot invested in yourself. And all of those, you know, that, that whole process is supportive of your health, you know, like that is you taking your own health into your hands. And, you know, we see this all the time in the pain clinic, you know, those people who are able to, you know, um, take control of their own lives and decide, I am going to do this for myself. Those aren't the people we see in the pain clinic because they don't have any pain because they have figured it out. For themselves. <laughs> so, you know, like this, 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 you know, being invested in it um, has, has sort of a holistic support, you know, uh, uh, from a human level. Um, in addition to you, you also as a byproduct are not reliant upon some, you know, like um, commerce or, or pharmaceutical company or something. Um, so yeah, I, I love that idea of this pharmaceutical egalitarianism. <laughs> okay, let's talk about edibles, because a lot of people uh, use edibles and swear by them for their pain and pretty much, you know, will express that they can't live without them. But edibles are, are a complex medicine and they've got pros and cons. So, so let's start there. What are your general impressions of the efficacy of edibles? And, and when you do recommend edibles, what do you recommend people try? Yeah, so let's start with the pros. So clearly we have something that's really easily dosable, just like we have with tinctures. You know, um, it's pretty easy, even if you have um, something that is, you know, more than the dose that you would prefer, it can often be really easy to divide that dose. You know, I am not a five milligram gummy person, like two and a half is just fine, thank you. So, you know, that that's the benefit is that you have something that is easily dosable, which means that a patient knows what to expect. There's some consistency in that effect, which is huge. So I love that about edibles is that it's easy to dose and easy to divide doses. Um, the other thing that I really like is the duration. You know, because we're putting the cannabinoids through the liver, you are, you know, recruiting the liver to um, prolong the effects of the medicine. Um, and often that can be extremely therapeutic. If you've got to get all the way through a work day, if you've got to get all the way through a night of sleep, you need a slow release formula. You know, something that wears off in two to three hours is not going to work for you. Um, so I, I like it for the ability to dose and the ability to last for a long time. And that, that I could see why patients would totally swear by that because those are really important components of medicine. And, and also, you know, we talked about earlier about the smoking. Um, while certainly the, the power of edibles um, is, is not to be scoffed at, um, it's nice because you don't go up so, as fast as you do with smoking. And so if you're looking for pain relief and the anti-inflammation without the stony aspect of it, edibles can often be a good choice. They can as long as you stay within your own therapeutic window. So, you know, we talked briefly about that before, how you've got to take enough of it to feel something, but you can't take so much that you start to experience negative effects. And unfortunately with edibles, the likelihood of experiencing a negative effect, it can be pretty high. So 
if we look at the data that came out of Colorado, you know, when legalization first came around, we saw that the vast majority of people who came into the emergency departments after ingesting cannabis, you know, they're having an acute psychotic episode or they think they're going to die. There's, you know, some kind of THC overdose. The vast majority of those cases are edibles. And part of the reason for that is that in when you ingest cannabis, Delta 9 is converted, you know, Delta 9 THC is converted into 11-hydroxy-THC, which is far more potent, and it lasts for a very long time. So, you know, inhaling 5 milligrams of THC is not at all the same thing as swallowing 5 milligrams of THC because your liver converts it into something that's more powerful and lasts longer. Um, The other thing about the liver is that, you know, everyone's liver is different. You know, the different effects of um, edibles say far more about the differences in our livers than they do about the difference in manufacturing processes or the differences in the products themselves. Um, you know, the, the enzymes within our liver that, you know, metabolize drugs and, and dump things into our bloodstream and protect us from toxins, all of those enzymes are, are proteins, and those proteins are encoded by our DNA, and our DNA is different. Um, you know, drug metabolism is affected by other drugs that you're taking, other medications that you're taking. It's affected by your diet. It's affected by your exercise and your other lifestyle components. So, you know, that for all of those reasons, you know, the effects of an edible are not only, you know, variable between people, but also variable within one person. So although, yes, it might be really easy to dose and it might last a long time, there's also some degree of um, risk there um, because you're you're allowing your liver to produce a very potent molecule um, and it, it you could experience different effects, you know, from day to day because of the other, you know, sort of life style factors. And this is such a challenge for for pain patients who are new to cannabis because you know what we're kind of teasing apart is actually a really complex situation, right? Where the, oh, yeah. the the patient wants the cannabinoids and so they take an edible because they they're approachable and they're pretty easy to get in in legal states anyway. And um, but then if you take it and you take too much your your we'll call it over medicated self not only is it way more intense because it's become 11 hydroxy but because your body is processing it more slowly um your bad experience lasts longer too right like if you exactly. if you smoke too much pot it's like oh all right well you know, I'm going to go and sit in nature and I'll be pretty good in about 45 minutes. I just, I know it's going to go away. And while you know it's going to go away with an edible too, that could easily be two and a half hours. And, easily, yeah. And you're like, damn. And so that will often scare people away from cannabis medicine when it really had nothing to do with the inherent value of cannabis medicine. It had to do with... um using edibles properly for pain takes some pre-education and then an awareness to start at a low amount. 
Absolutely. And this, this adage, the start low and go slow applies absolutely the most to any product that is ingested, swallowed. So, you know, it is incredibly important to start, you know, really, really low. And when, when we're working with our chronic pain patients in Philadelphia, I have a collaboration with Thomas Jefferson University and the Rothman Orthopedic Institute. When we're working with our chronic pain patients, you know, we're advising them if they're going to use an edible product, a swallowed product to start at one milligram of THC, because there, there really are some individuals out there who are hypersensitive to THC. You know, there's a lot of variability. Some people can tolerate an entire 100 milligram edible, you know, to themselves and other people, you know, spin out into, you know, total paranoia and psychosis at one milligram. So, you know, it's far more conservative and it's it's um you know better to not take enough than it is to take too much because you can always take more but you can never take less especially with an edible and um you know while we're talking about liberation medicine um let's let's talk about ego and being cool um i want to make sure i point out to patients that there's a certain vibe within the cannabis scene that taking more THC is cool. And if you take less, you are somehow less than or a wuss or, you know, have got baby lungs or, you know, there's a lot of different ways that people with high tolerances um, can kind of diss people who take a small amount. Mm-hmm. But I want to encourage folks to, you know, if, if taking 2.5 milligrams of THC, which which most people don't feel it at 2.5 milligrams, it's a it's a nice steady you know three times a day anti-inflammatory dose, but you don't get intoxicated. And and I'll mention sometimes oh you know 2.5 milligrams, and someone in the group I'm talking with will totally scoff, and they're all mm-hmm. like, oh I take you know 25 milligrams you know six times a day, and I'm like I'm glad that you found something that worked for you. But, you know, there are a lot of people, myself included, if I took 25 milligrams, like, I'm going to have a bad day. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Like, like my, you know, I'm going to, you know, you know, I don't know if I can call it so far as psychosis, but I need to go lay down and I'm going to be scared for a few hours and I hate it. Mm -hmm. And so, like, you know, individualized medicine is very modern and it's important for pain patients to remember that you need to start uh, low and you need to increase it slowly and comparing your dosage to anybody else should not matter at all. You've got different number of, uh, you know, re, you know, cannab- cannabinoid receivers in your body. Um, you, your body is going to process it at, at a different rate. There really is not um, you know, any kind of hard and fast comparisons, patients to patients, you might be able to get guidance from other patients, but understand that guidance and then start at one milligram. Right. So I, I, I love that you're bringing this up and, and I don't know, at least for my patients that I'm working with, you know, like we, we are seeing a whole lot of people that are entirely cannabis naive. So luckily, you know, they're not bringing that kind of thinking or that kind of, um, for lack of a better word, machismo (laughs) to the, to the table, you know, it's entirely novel for them and they're just looking to their doctors for help. Um, so, you know, fortunately, you know, we can start working with people with all of those factors 
factors that you mentioned, you know, your individual experience. And the beautiful thing about this plant is that it is dynamic enough that there is something for pretty much everyone. Um, and I, I love the idea of we're all unified in our process, but not necessarily in our dose or our amount. So our process is always the same. We start somewhere. And we either have a good time and we can keep going or we have a bad time and we have to back off. And the magnitude at which we increase or the magnitude at which we decrease our consumption or our frequency may vary, but that's the process, right? And this is something that we don't talk about in, you know, all of the rest of allopathic medicine very much, you know, that this is true for lots of other drugs that people go to their doctors for, you know, like some people go for a uh, anxiety medication or a tricyclic antidepressant and the doctor tries you on one thing and it didn't work so you switch to a different drug and then you have to up the dose and then that was too much so then you back down the dose but the difference between allopathic pharmaceuticals and cannabis is that instead of your doctor telling you you're having a bad time let's do something different you have to pay attention to yourself and look at your journal and say that didn't work for me I need to do something different which for some people can be incredibly empowering and it can make all the difference in the world in their health. But for other people who are really accustomed to having their hands, you know, truly held by a healthcare professional and putting all of their trust and getting all 100% of their guidance about their health from, you know, a person in a white coat, um, that can be really intimidating to, to have to say like, oh, geez, I have to like figure out all of this stuff by myself. Like this is really overwhelming. And I feel for that person. It is absolutely true. It is work to try and find a place to start and then, you know, fine tune your own process in accordance to your own body and your own lifestyle needs. So it, it can be a process. Process, but it can also be an incredibly rewarding process. And bully for anybody in the audience who's new to cannabis, who's trying to, you know, transition from opioids to cannabis, who is saying, okay, I need to get a good education first, right? Because mm -hmm. um, it's, it's sad how much of the licensed market cannabis packaging and marketing um, is intended to confuse the buyer of what it actually is. Um, maybe trying to sound like a product of higher quality than it is or making claims that are untrue. And so when you, when you take your health into your own hands and you do your research in advance, um, you are really doing yourself a service. For sure. And that can be really hard, you know, like it's very difficult to know who to trust, you know, like you, this is on the label that it relieves pain and that it improves cognition or whatever it is, whatever it's on the label. Oh, it was formulated by a PhD. Therefore it's a good product, you know, like that, all of those things can be kind of deceiving. And it's, I, I do feel for people who are, you know, just embarking on this journey because it is a lot of homework and it is a lot of time that not a lot of people, you know, have the luxury of navigating. I've heard you use the term science washing before, and I and I got a chuckle out of that. And and you're comparing it to like greenwashing, right? Things that are are faking being environmental, right? And exactly, there's yeah. so much like there's so many cannabis products that are faking 
having a scientific basis to them, not cannabis itself, which has a scientific basis, but that particular method may not like be in line with the science. Exactly. Like if you have a vaporizer pen that has, you know, sleep in its, you know, branding or, or its effects, you know, like I think that the, your listeners are would benefit from, you know, applying some scientific thinking to that. You know, how do you know that it's good for sleep? Where did you get your information? How many people tried it? For how many people did it work? You know, like, how, where did the formula come from? So, you know, like, I, I love the idea of everyone being a little bit more skeptical, you know, and, and especially when it comes to this kind of stuff. You know, we, we have been relying on the pharmaceutical industry to, you know, we, we trusted them to provide us with safe medicine for a long time, and it didn't happen. Uh, you know, like we were extremely misled by the pharmaceutical industry when it came to the opioids. And um, I think it would behoove all of us to think a little bit more critically and skeptically about, you know, any kind of claim that appears on some packaging. So I realize we've kind of set ourselves up, right? We, we've just spent this show <laughs> recommending that people try cannabis instead of opioids. And now we just said, um, you know, the, the market is full of lies and you can't trust what's on the shelves. And the damn thing is, is that they're both true. And, and the best thing that I recommend to people is, you, you know, do your research on, 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 you know, the dosing protocol that you want to do for yourself and then do some research beyond just talking to a bud tender on the product that you're going to buy. But then also, um, you know, humans have been using cannabis and, you know, smoking it and making cannabis tinctures for, for thousands and thousands of years. Um, the new cool, hot, fancy thing is not necessarily better. Um, and if you're just starting out and you don't have a very good bullshit detector when it comes to cannabis products, um, I would always recommend to start with something that is more simple than more fancy. You know, everybody was all excited when water-soluble CBD became available. And they're like, oh, we can put in all these beverages. And I'm like, what use does water-soluble isolate have? Because I don't think it's healthy to take isolate. And you have to over-process it even more to make it water-soluble. And and so, you know, maybe maybe that makes me, you know less cool. It certainly got rid of any uh, soda advertisers I would have gotten on the <laughs> show. But I, I think that sometimes it's, it's uh, you know, uh, uh, better uh, if you stick with the basics. Yeah. And, you know, I many times before I have said that, you know, we did phase one clinical trials on cannabis 5,000 years ago in China. It's safe for most people. You know, and now the question is, is it effective? Um, and I do think that we have a lot of evidence to demonstrate that, uh, you know, cannabis is both a safe and effective pain reliever for most people with chronic pain. We can't say that about opioids. We do know that it does work for some people, you know, a very small proportion of people. It works over the long term. 
There are people who have been on, you know, opioids for decades and it, it, you know, it's effective for them, but it's uh, far the risk of, you know, physical dependence and the risk of overdose and the risk of, you know, constipation, cognitive impairment and all these other things. It's greater than the, you know, pain relief that results from engaging with opioids. Um, Where these two start to interact is largely at a point where, you know, patients often get to a point where their opioids are becoming more difficult to obtain. And when you have a person who's physically dependent upon an opioid, they're kind of stuck. They need something to be introduced into their body to feel normal. And so a a lot of people have been using cannabis in combination with their opioids, especially initially. And, you know, my work in academia has been supporting this approach for a very long time because we know, you know, at a very fundamental mammalian level, when you have these compounds in your body at the same time, they produce synergistic pain relief. That means a greater than additive effect. It's not two plus two equals four, it's two plus two equals seven. So when you have something like that, when you have a seven instead of a four, then you can back off on the doses of each of those components so that you can achieve the same level of pain relief you had before at a much smaller dose. Anything, anything we can do to reduce the dose of an opioid required to elicit pain relief, that is a really good thing. And, you know, nothing, no other, no single other drug, no other law, no prescription drug monitoring program, no abuse deterrent formulation of a pharmaceutical, no other intervention has reduced the number of opioid overdose deaths as much as legalizing cannabis has reduced opioid deaths. So, you know, we're about to go into the how-to of actually doing the transition because I know you've given this a lot of thought. But before we go there, there's one more thing I want to hit on the on the edibles tip. And that is you and I mentioned in passing that, that you know, many folks, they just stop at 2.5 milligrams because that gets – that takes care of their pain. And maybe if they want to feel like a little jocular with it, they'll go up to 5 milligrams. And so they're getting – some of the other attributes of pain relief as well. But then you've got these people who have got long-term chronic pain and they're taking 100 milligram brownies and and they're both pain patients. Like, like I know there's several different variables at play. So I'll just toss it to you like that and say like, what's up with that? Well, one of the one of the fundamental things there is tolerance, which is, you know, both a tool and a hindrance. So in order to uh, reap the benefits of THC and cannabis, you, you do have to have some degree of tolerance so that you can widen your own personal therapeutic window. You can widen the dose range at which you feel something, but you, you, you can still fall below the threshold of feeling bad things. So staying in that therapeutic window is easier if you have some tolerance to THC. It's, it's more tolerable. You have a wider window of good effects. Um, the problem comes in, and, and this is something that, you know, we would be wise not to repeat with the opioids, right? It, with with opioids, no, no doctor ever told their patient, hey, 
This stuff can produce physical dependence. To manage your physical dependence, you should monitor your tolerance. If you find yourself taking more or more frequently, take a break, switch to something else for a couple of days, allow your body to reset, and come back to it. That could have saved thousands of people's lives, but we never had that conversation with our opioid-consuming patients. This is one thing that we can, we have the opportunity to do right with cannabis. We can have that exact conversation. This is a substance that you can develop physical dependence. It's rewarding. You could, you know, develop some kind of cannabis use disorder or hyperemesis or some other dysregulation in your endocannabinoid system. It's prudent to take a break from time to time, not only to allow your body to resensitize, but if you are able to take those periodic tolerance breaks, you're able to resensitize to a point where you don't need 100 milligrams in order to feel that effect that you felt on Friday night. You know, it is a far more economical approach to take tolerance breaks, reduce the amount that is required to elicit that same effect. For pain patients who have pain every day the, and who have transitioned to cannabis, what do you tell them uh, to do on those tolerance break days? Because, you know, so many of the pain patients I talk to, the idea of taking a tolerance break and experiencing 48 hours of their pain straight just makes them cry. And, and they, they, they want to avoid that at all costs. Yeah, I mean, like, to be quite frank, I don't tell them anything because people are very resourceful in figuring out what's going to work best for them. A lot of people, you know, turn to other kinds of pain therapies, anti-inflammatories, you know, the non-steroidal ones, you know, some of them might take an opioid for a couple of days because, I mean, like, the risk with opioids is over the long term where they where they increase risk and where they lose their efficacy is when you take them chronically. But if you're only taking, you know, opioids for two days, that's exactly what they were designed for short-term use. So some of them switch back to opioids. Some of them, you know, just, um, you know, rely on meditation and cognitive sort of techniques. They're, um, in fact, digital health technologies and apps that people can download to, you know, sort of go through practices daily to cognitively manage their pain. So, you know, I don't, fortunately, I don't need to have those conversations, frankly, at all, because people are very resourceful in figuring out how can I just get through a couple of days? And it's different for everyone. It just makes me sad when when they don't want to go back to the opiate because maybe they had a challenge with it before and then they are on cannabis and they know they need to take the break. So either A, they, they resist taking a tolerance break um, because they are afraid of those days off or as I see so common, they just turn to alcohol and so they're sloshed for two days and then they come back and I just wish there were more options. I do too. And you know what? I, I feel like this is going to be, you know, I, I, I would hope that as this, you know, chronic pain management with cannabis becomes more mainstream, that we will have more of our best and brightest minds in um, clinical practice and in scientific development that we will have some answers for people. All right. So let's get down to the brass tacks of actually transitioning. Um, so, um, you know, going cold turkey on opioids um, can be not only difficult, but dangerous. Um, and there are definitely advantages of, of doing kind of like a measured transition. But I know you've developed this out in detail. So, so why don't you tell us your recommendations, Aidy, for, for 
transit for the actual transition time, the process. Yeah. And again, this is very different for every patient. And also just because you're on an opioid doesn't mean that you're on the same opioid as anyone else who is going to the same pain clinic. So there are short acting opioid drugs and longer acting opioid drugs, um, which all have their different profiles in terms of how rapidly you can taper off of them. Um, So again, this is where the personalized component is critical. Uh, You know, we've been attempting to develop a formal opioid opioid tapering protocol for a number of years, and we we make some observations, one of which is if we tell a patient absolutely nothing, by the three-month mark, they have just sort of figured out how to take half as many opioids or get off of them entirely on their own. So again, this kind of comes back to the self-empowering component where, you know, people are perfectly capable of figuring things out for themselves. Um, You know, like if, if you need some strategies specifically for doing that, what we found is that a lot of patients just start by eliminating one of their daily doses. So a a really common one that people eliminate is the one right before bed. So if they switch to some kind of ingested or swallowed preparation of cannabis right before bed, they no longer need their overnight dose of their opioids. So that's probably the most common one to skip the dose of the opioid that's taken right before bed. And then often a lot of patients wake up feeling refreshed, having slept through the whole night without having that heavy sort of sedation and the, the uh, almost the hangover from the heavier narcotics. Um, and just that, that cognitive state alone is able to get them through the day so that they're able to walk beside their pain um, and, you know, live in the presence of the pain rather than trying to totally numb it with their next dose of their opioid. Um, So those are, those are my, my practical ones. And then I would also, you know, again, advocate for the personalized component, which is do what is right for you. You know, a lot of patients will do just fine on, you know, like one or two doses of their opioid every day. A lot of people can, you know, decide that they don't want to be reliant on this anymore and they're willing to, you know, have a a, a little bit, you know, because the thing about cannabis is that it doesn't profoundly eliminate the pain the way that an opioid does, but it certainly profoundly improves um, the quality of life. So for some people, the physical sensation of the pain is so intense that they just can't ever get away from it. They're always going to be consuming an opioids, and that's fine. If that's what your body needs in order for you to have a high quality of life, then shoot for that. But that's, that's really what it boils down to is figuring out what your own personal priorities are and utilizing cannabis in combination with and eventually, you know, for some people potentially in substitution for the opioids. I think that patients who are going through that transition, they really need to, they they really could, should, or (laughs) I'm doing need and should, I'm like, oh, these are not good words. Um, It is described to me often by patients that they think it's going to be worse than it is. And that the transition becomes easier for even very simple things like, you know, part of 
part of taking Delta 9 THC is it can cause, you know, a little bit of cascading forgetfulness. The, the kind of thing where we joke as cannabis people like, oh, forgot where my car keys were, right? Just basic stuff like that. And so many patients, they're, they're so used to taking their opioids on a schedule and that if they aren't on their schedule, they're afraid that their pain will flare up. But then they start incorporating cannabis alongside the opioids and a little bit of the pain relief kicks in that's natural, but also a little bit of that, that forgetfulness comes involved as well. And they actually forget that they're in pain or they forget to take their dose and they realized, oh my gosh, you know, I've naturally started replacing the opioids, opioids just because of the nature of cannabis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. I, I think that that's been reflected in some of our anecdotes that we hear in the clinic, um, you know, and and again, like this, this is like to each their own, you know, for for a lot of our patients, you know, more than half of our patients don't experience any impairment whatsoever. And for those that do experience some impairment, they it either doesn't affect their day or they're more willing to deal with the impairment than they are to deal with their opioid side effects. Well, this is all fantastic. Um, Aidy, thank you so much for taking your time to, well, actually a lot more time than we had, uh, we had planned on. We actually got on a roll. This was a lot of really great information. Uh, but, but thank you so much for sharing, you know, the caring that you have for patients and your in-depth scientific research, because I think that, you know, there, there's so much in our scene, which is, um, you know, anecdotal evidence and people sharing only what worked for them. And then a whole bunch of kind of like myth and taboo left over from, from the reefer madness days. And I think that, you know, people like you doing the real research and then, you know, interacting with patients and then coming out and sharing the reality of what they can do to save themselves is really important. Well, Shango, it's an honor and a privilege to do this work, and I feel um, very strongly about sharing the work as widely as possible. So thank you so much for the opportunity to share it with your audience. Wonderful. So if you want to find out more about um, AD, uh, there's a couple different ways to do it. First of all, I recommend that if you like the kind of information we talked about today and you would like to hear it um, with pictures, uh, I, I recommend that you go to the, the, the YouTube channel for Cultivation Classic. Um, it is a uh, it's a fantastic event in the Portland area, and on the Cultivation Classic YouTube channel, there is a recording of uh, '80s. 2017 presentation on Beyond Opioids. And so you'll hear a lot of the stuff that you learned today over again, but there's also a bunch of stuff she covered there that we did not cover and it's got pictures. So that's great. Um, also, um, Adi did a great talk at the Cato Institute um, on harm reduction for opioids. And you can find that on the Cato Institute website at uh, cato.org. That's uh, C A-T-O dot O-R-G. And then finally, if you want to reach out to uh, Aidy Ray herself or find more about, find out more about her work and her company, you can go to smartcannabis.life. So that would be www.smartcannabis.life. And uh, you can reach out if you want to, or just learn more. 
Find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the weekly newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news and product reviews. On the Shaping Fire website, you will also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. For information on me and where I'll be speaking, you can check out shangolos.com. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Los.